Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Friday, January 5th. I got to say, the first week of the new year so far, technology-wise, has been a total train wreck. Nothing major this morning, except I hit start and I started talking, and for some reason, my broadcast wouldn't connect. We've never had that issue before. That's a new one. Um, Luckily, I just restarted the software quickly, and it's up and running. So uh, hopefully, we'll be good. I think if we get through this first week, this was just practice. We're, we're going we're gonna to start a new year next week um, and see if we can get a better start. Uh, today is Trucking Technology and Efficiency. It's also a Friday free-for-all. Jump in with whatever you got. Joel is here with me. Pretty sure Henry's joining us at some point and maybe Alec as well. So I'm just going to bring Joel in right now. Joel, good morning. Hey, Kevin. How are you doing? Good. Where are you today? I'm in Florence. South Carolina, setting at a truck stop at the moment. There you go. Hey, I saw you put out some pretty good numbers here this week. You've had a better start to the first <laughs> to the new year than I have. I can tell you that. Uh, I, I am telling you, um, them, them some impressive fuel mileage numbers for the dead of winter. Yeah, uh, they I are. I know it's been a light winter. I, I, I get it, but man, oh man, I have not had a fill up under 10.1 miles a gallon since December 1st. And, wow. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just, we're just killing it. So, that is awesome. Uh, yeah, it, it, it really is. It's, uh, it's really surprised me. And we did do some tweaks to the truck. You know, we added air tabs and I adjusted the tire pressure. And we've done a few other things that, you know, I'll probably talk about as I, you know, verify exactly what, what the impact was. But initially... That's yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> You're double digits yeah. right through the heart of winter. And I'm, and I'm pulling Schneider trailers. You know, that's the thing. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not pulling some, you know, super arrowed up trailer right. with a lift axle on it. I'm recaps and a belly fairing. That's, yeah. that's what we're looking at. <laughs> duels, duels, recaps and a belly fairing. Yeah, right. so, and, and you know, you know how these tend to track to one side or the other. They're never, going straight down the road. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're at 10.4 lifetime. It's the first time I've hit 10.4 and, and, uh, I think my 90 days at 10.91 or my, my 30 days at 10.91. So the, the numbers are just outstanding. You know, I want to kind of put that into context with something. Uh, yesterday I was on X and I, somebody posted, And I thought it was just an odd question. It was just out of the blue, and I wasn't even sure what the guy did. I could tell he was in the trucking industry. But his question was, what causes diesel engines to produce more CO2? And I thought, what's an odd question? Why are you asking that? So I actually said, why do you want to know? And he said, well, I deal with fleet maintenance managers all the time. And I guess there's some sort of rating system out there now for just solely based on CO2. And um, prob- probably true. Yeah. Yeah. And he claims these fleet maintenance managers get these reports, but nobody understands what any of it means. They're all asking, like, why did I get a high rating? What am I doing right? They don't even understand the concept. Well, yeah, the data overload is a problem in the industry, just in the general um, perspective, I guess. We get so much data it's impossible for 
people to understand it. You know, a, a fleet manager's got a million other things going on. Then you put the stack of data in front of them and they're looking at it and they're lost. You know, yeah. <laughs> if somebody could hold their hand and take them through it line by line, sure, they're going to understand what's going on. But generally, that's not the case. And and uh, so that's that is a huge problem in the industry that the technology is progressing at such a rate it's hard for the majority of people to keep up with the technology and continue to run the business well you know what my biggest problem with this is it's a smart way program and SmartWay has been such a disaster, in my opinion. The whole way they rate their SmartWay tires is ridiculous. It's, mm. it's based on being more efficient than the best-selling tire in that size. Well, the best-selling tire has Correct. nothing whatsoever to do with efficiency. So why would we Correct. use that as the standard to measure other tires against for efficiency? Correct. So this is... <laughs> The same kind of program, we're rating these fleets based on CO2. Nobody in the system understands it. Obviously, they're asking random questions on X. What does this even mean? The problem I have with that is that's our money being used. Totally wasted because all this money is being spent on these programs. Nobody knows what they're doing. I, well, you're, you're not wrong. Um, there are some complexities there that we're, we're definitely going to have to work through to, to keep things moving in the right direction. The, the way that I kind of look at this, and we love to bash the government, and we love to beat up EPA. I get it. And it, it, they do make well, life miserable. But, it, but you, let you me can't preface deny this, the though. progress but, that uh, has been made since I, the inception. It's never been a, a nice smooth pathway to make that progress. I, I completely understand that. And as we become more technically advanced, this becomes more and more problematic and will require more and more money to train people to understand this. So I, it, it's hard to balance this. We, we can't say we don't want to spend any money to do this because then we get all this pollution out there. We can't just say we want to throw money at it because then we're wasting money. So how do we manage this and balance it? That's a, that's a hard question. Here's my biggest problem. Uh, I, I've always mm-hmm. been against government programs because they're a mess. They waste tons of money. We might get some results. I, I'm with you. I want a cleaner environment. There's no doubt about it. We've mm-hmm. got to take a step back and, and figure out something better than what we're doing. And I, I mean across the board. As a, We are $33 trillion in debt. I don't care how oh, I, important I it is. Dis- At some point, I, you've got I, to stop spending. Yes. And... I'll attack, I don't disagree. I'll attack these kinds of programs. The government spent waste money everywhere, but I attack these kind of programs mm-hmm. because I understand them. This is our industry. I see what's happening. I see what a yes. huge waste of money SmartWay has been. You know, it, it, yes. not even yes. other programs, just SmartWay alone has been a huge I waste agree. of money. Um, and and something's got to change. We can't keep spending like this. And I don't care if we can all agree on the problem. If you and I ran a company and we were so far in debt, we couldn't see a way out. We would not keep spending money on stupid programs that aren't really doing much. We, we wouldn't so be able you're, to. You're, you're touching on the divergent between how government thinks and how business thinks and what's part of the problem. So I actually had a chance to talk to a very high-level engineer about this subject just a few weeks ago. 
And, you know, people are complaining about the programs that are in place with the emissions and whatnot. And when you talk to the engineers, they actually would prefer a long-term stable type program, even if the emission requirements were harder, because it gives them time to engineer proper solutions. The problem is, is when we have government that changes administration every four (laughs) years, and then that changes what's going to happen at EPA in terms of how much time you have, it makes it extremely, extremely difficult. So, you know, on one hand, we say only elected officials should be able to make the decisions inside EPA. When you only have elected officials, the time period's too short. Engineers cannot make the product to the level that we expect and perform the way that we want it to perform. So it is a hell of an issue. There's, I don't have an answer for it. That's for sure. I, I, I know that, you know, I hate the idea of appointed people up there making rules, but by the same token, if there's no stability for the engineers to have the time frame they need to really properly engineer the solution, it's problematic for us it, it, you know, out here in the real world because we got what we had on the first round of emissions. They didn't have enough time to do it. Right. They put out pieces of junk because they were under an EPA mandate. And we all know what happens. So well, it, it's very, very hard. Very yeah, difficult. Let's look at something else. And what you're doing today highlights this. Your, your lifetime on a truck, and, and we've all talked about this. You're not doing anything weird. It's not like you're out running super light stuff on flat ground all the time. Mm-hmm. You're out pulling general freight off load boards just like everybody else. You, you have some control over the freight you're moving, but we talk about that all the time. That's a good thing. You should be smart at picking your freight. And if you can pick freight yes. that gets you better fuel economy or puts you in a lane with lower fuel costs, you should do that. That's just smart business. You're achieving yes. 10 plus on a lifetime. We've had EPA mandates mm-hmm. about fuel mileage and, and all this stuff. And the fleet average in the country is still 6.6. Clearly, what we're doing doesn't yes. work. Yes, yes, because we have individual drivers that who knows what they're thinking about when they're driving, and the driver still plays a, a hell of a part in there. Now, that is starting to change as we start to get the downsped powertrain. The driver's skill level will have less and less of an impact, but it's still 30% of fuel mileage or better. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that, that, that part will never go away. So there's no government solution that they're going to put in terms of, uh, I think, a real-world fuel economy number. I think when you put it on a test cell, you're going to look to achieve an EPA-simulated route that has to meet a certain number, and then you're hoping for the best when it goes out into the real world. But uh, it is very difficult. There are no easy answers here. And almost anything that you do, guys like me and you, we're going to be able to, to pick it apart and, you know, say, oh, man, this is screwed up. This is this is wrong. This is bad. In hindsight, it's 2020. You well, know, I get just, it. It just I get is. It, but, so, so, so imagine I, you know, I talked to some of these people at EPA and at Smartway. Um, some of them, you were just wondering why are they even there. They're clearly bureaucrats, yeah. politicians. Yeah. There's other people there that really, they, they bury me. You know what I mean? They are very, very smart and they know this stuff. And it's, man, it's just such a hard, hard issue to deal with. But 
at the end of the day, and this is kind of what I when I talk with Alec about fuel efficiency all the time, I said at the end of the day, you can look at the 30, 60, 90, you can look at all these things. At the end of the day, it's that lifetime total average. And when you think about EPA, you have to look at the lifetime results. And where we've come since 1974 to now is pretty goddamn astounding. It just is. Emissions-wise. They, they have done, the, the results have been good. I can't say the job, you know, the job that they've done getting there has always been great, but we are much, much cleaner, and as a whole, we're much better off than, than where we were. Uh, uh, imagine I think too this. often, especially, especially small operators, you know, we kind of have it in our mindset that our right to turn a profit trumps everybody else's right to breathe clean air. And, I, you know, to me, that doesn't fly. We can do this clean. Does it cost us a little more? Yes, but when everybody's on board, freight rates will move up. Is it inflationary to a point? Initially it is, but on the backside, you know, the the economic cost of the pollution has to be accounted for too. So there's some give and take in that regard as well. I will agree on the emissions, and I'm glad. I, I am really glad we don't walk through truck stop parking lots with your eyes burning and your throat on fire because there's diesel fumes in the air. I really appreciate that. Imagine this. You and I were working on fuel mileage in the late 80s, early 90s. Everybody thought we were just dumb. <laughs> Why mm -hmm. would you? It was 80 cents a gallon. Um, imagine sure. you and I sitting around, had we met in 1990, going, what do you think the, um, the average fuel economy on a heavy truck's going to be in 2024? <laughs> yeah, we'd have been thinking 30 miles a gallon. Exactly, we? right? Yeah. We, uh, neither one, if, if somebody would have said, oh, it's going to be 6.6, .6, we would have called them an idiot. Mm -hmm. We would have said, you're stupid. Yeah. We're, we're beating that today. Right. Look at all we're going to accomplish right. in the next 20 plus years, almost 30 years. It, it's, and here we are all this time later at 6.6 .6 as an industry. And you know what that screams to me? That just screams to me how inefficient this industry is and yes. how many billions of dollars. We just pissed down the drain. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, we're, we're complaining and, about low rates and cheap freight, and we are so inefficient as an industry. It's amazing that anybody's out there running when you really start to think about it. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's, it's horrible. We're probably one of the most inefficient industries in existence, I, probably. I, I can't imagine that there are other industries that in 30 years have made almost no improvements on their number one cost. I, 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 I would have acceptable a, to a, a majority of the of the operators out there. They're fine with it. Yeah, and this isn't a government rant. This and, and is that, this is an industry <laughs> rant. I don't understand how tr people who own trucks <laughs> think this is okay. Yeah, yeah, it, it's mind blowing. I, it, when you look at the challenges the industry faces from a government aspect, and then from an educational aspect inside the industry, where you you know you got guys say, well. You know, it, it, you don't need to get 10 miles a gallon. You just need to get better rates. <laughs> you know, that shit is mind-blowing. It, it absolutely is. You know, my, I'm okay with 5.5 because I, I make 4 bucks a mile. Are you kidding me? My response so, to that is always, wait a minute, I want both. Why do these things have to <laughs> <Yes>. be mutually <laughs> exclusive? Yes, I want better rates. Of course I do. So, that doesn't mean I'm not going to work on my expenses. 
Right, right. Stupidity applies across the board, whether it's the <laughs> operational side or whether it's the regulatory side. There's plenty of stupidity to go around. We don't have that problem. There's, yeah. There's no just, shortage for sure. Well, uh, yeah, well and let's just it, talk about it, just ignorance, not stupidity, just ignorance. I, I was mm-hmm. I was honestly staring at my screen yesterday shocked when somebody was saying fleet managers, these fleet maintenance managers, don't know what causes an engine to produce more CO2 or any emission. I mean, and I said, first off, I said, look, that's not an easy question to answer. There's probably 80 variables in this. It's not simple and straightforward, but I can tell you one thing, that an engine that burns less fuel produces fewer emissions, all other things being equal. So why don't we at least just focus on the simple, obvious thing? Yes, in its most basic form, fuel economy is the primary driver of CO2 emissions or any emissions. Yeah. Um, there, yeah. there is no doubt about that. You're, you're exactly right. And, you know, kind of building on that, look, we struggle with this just in our little kind of group here when we talk about fuel efficiency. We've got a lot of people that believe engine tuning is the way to improve fuel efficiency, you know, where I'm kind of on the other side of the spectrum. I don't give a shit what the tune is. I want my gearing, you know, the downsped concept to match whatever the tune is in the engine. Right. I don't care about the tuning. Let's, let's make the gearing match it and drive efficiencies that way. Um, you know, to me, that's a smarter way to go. So there's arguments back and forth on how you even achieve fuel efficiency. So it's, uh, it's, it's, definitely not easy uh, it, it makes for great radio we get to talk about that's right <laughs> but um, it's uh it's interesting there's a lot of different perspectives you know i'm i give my perspective there's all kinds of different perspectives out there in, in terms of fuel efficiency and and, and how you do things um i just kind of let my numbers speak for themselves i know henry kind of does the same thing we embraced a, a specific concept, just different manufacturers, and and we're out here getting the job done every day. And just you know, the numbers are what they are. And here, here's, they're hard to argue with. Here's an interesting thought experiment: What would happen to the industry if the concept of fuel surcharge just went away? You, you just have to deal <laughs> with it. A lot of guys would be parking their truck. Here, <laughs> here's the fuel price. Deal with it. Go get a better rate with without this this weird surcharge. And I get surcharges. They make total sense. We're in an industry with a very so, volatile well, cost, and it's our biggest cost. So, so I get it, yes. but it's almost like we've used that as a crutch, and we put our we lack do. of efficiency yes. back into the economy yes. and say, you guys pay for this so i was talking to some europeans and i know nobody's going to like to hear this but they said you guys are just lazy we are i get i agree with them you're you're lazy (laughs) and and this is a prime example of that because i get a fuel surcharge i don't have to worry about efficiency right that's how our minds work yep (laughs) and it's totally crazy because that's that's a that's a revenue source if you do it right yeah Well, and then then we uh, go around bragging, you can't live without us. Three days without us and you'll be starving. We're heroes and you can't live without us. <laughs> shouldn't we be a little more responsible then to try to be a little more efficient instead of saying, we're just going to make you pay for our inefficiencies? Uh, that, that's, that's what we're, we're really saying. 
um, we're inefficient. We don't know how to manage our business. We want you all to pay for it. Right. Otherwise, you're going to starve to death. <laughs> that's basically what we're saying. That's yeah, sad, but it that's, is. That's I know what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, crazy. So I, you know, it, it it is. And you know, when we get into downtimes like this, you know, there's there's all kinds of. You know, who's taking advantage of who and, and, you know, who's driving rates and who's manipulating the marketplace. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't even want to get drug into that stuff. All I know is that your very best insurance policy against the down market is efficiency. And there is absolutely no denying that. Well, let's think about this. Efficiency be, is your insurance policy. We should be, we're fortunate. We should you know, realize it, that we are necessary. We're not, you know, a luxury high-end industry that gets totally decimated in a down market because people stop spending money. You have to pay us. Correct. We're we're right. You need us. Three days without us in the country shuts down. So I've always said, here's the thing. I don't care if fuel goes to $20 a gallon. Somebody's going to move the freight Somebody's going to get paid to move the freight and somebody's going to make money doing it. It's impossible not to. Yeah. Otherwise, our country shuts down. So you're right. Correct. The, there's there's a there's a guaranteed path here to succeed in trucking. Be in the yes. I, probably all you have to do is be <laughs> in the, the top 50 percent. Just be just be slightly better than average. And it almost guaranteed you have to stay in business. One of the few businesses you can start that has guaranteed market, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. It, it doesn't. It doesn't take much to to soar like an eagle out here. It really doesn't. Um, you, you get a lot of people that get grumpy and mad at the world, and you know the service probably isn't up to par as to where it should be for their customers, and. So it's kind of easy to come out here with a with a decent attitude and a smile on your face to make a name for yourself, and you get just the least little bit efficient. You're, you're going to do well even in a down market, and uh, yeah. so it's uh, efficiency is really for the small operator. It's really the only thing we have. We've talked about this. The big carriers have economies of scale. They just do. Right. Uh, we will right. never have economies of scale. Big carriers have an extremely difficult time running efficiently. I'm watching my brother struggle. The bigger he gets, and, the harder it is to manage a fleet efficiently. It just is. So you rely more and more upon economies of scale. And that's part of the reason why we see the fuel economy numbers that we see on trucks, the big fleets, because it's just so difficult to manage and they know they have economies of scale. It's easier for an accountant to make decisions because they're pretty cut and dry. They don't have to rely on training a bunch of drivers to maximize the fuel efficiency of, of the vehicle. The other part of it is when did, when did uh, fuel surcharge just be really become a standard thing that hasn't always been part no, of the industry, correct? It, right. So I, we have to go back, and I, I'm sure I could find the dates even. I did this once. I remember it was a really bad year for me. I almost went out of business that year. I was growing too fast. I had three mm-hmm. engines fail on me in the same year. I had mm-hmm. all three were cats, by the way. 
All three engines that failed. <laughs> oh gosh, here we go. Yeah, that was my, that was my year uh, of the cat. I, I for some reason, and I it wasn't even on purpose. It was just I was out buying trucks because I was growing like crazy. Sure. And I would buy whatever truck looked like a good deal at the time. I I wasn't even into specs or it was just well that looks like mm-hmm. a good deal. And I ended up with several cats and. It wasn't all, Mm -hmm. I mean, I had one where our mechanic left the drain plug loose and lost all the oil going down the road, and we lost that engine. You can't blame that on Cat, but another one overheated, and the driver didn't get it shut down in time. Um, But Mm -hmm. three engines. I was running a lot of my trucks in Trust State, Ohio, and your base plate to Mm -hmm. run in Trust State, Ohio back then was like $300. So I had a lot of trucks, Mm -hmm. I was and, and base plates were coming up. Ohio changed their mm-hmm. rules that year, and it went from 300 to about 1300 per truck. Yes, I remember that. And yep. fuel, for the first time that I remember, right around that time, we're talking right around 1990, I think, somewhere around there, fuel went above $1.25 a gallon. That was mm-hmm. catastrophic. Because mm-hmm. when you're at 80 cents and you go to a dollar 20 something, and then that's when the fuel surcharge finally kicks in. But that was like a mm-hmm. 40 cent per gallon increase with nothing to offset it. So, but, so it was right around late 80s, about. early 90s mm-hmm. when the, the fuel surcharge really became mm-hmm. a common thing. Because if for some reason fuel went below a dollar 25 a gallon, the fuel surcharge would disappear again. Correct. So here's something I want you to think about. So if you remember pre-fuel surcharge, remember when all the fleets were would watch the market and they would adjust the speeds of the trucks based on what the market was doing? It was not unusual for one day the fleet was running 55, you know, yeah. the next week they were 62, so, then they were back to fit. Remember when all that was going this, on? That, because there was no fuel surcharge to protect them. So they, they were they really, to, really, right. really constant. They had to do it in order to survive. We don't see that. Nobody slows down anymore because of that fuel surcharge. It's great from a business sense, but it's horrible from an efficiency um, perspective. Well, there's always those unintended consequences, right? That's probably one of the big things besides the mega carriers relying on economies of scale. Fuel surcharge has also really... And I'm not advocating to get rid of fuel because I know I'm going to hear that. Oh, you're going to take it away from me. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that, you know, that is part of the reason why we still see six and a half and seven mile a gallon uh, as averages out there because we're getting – we're getting paid to be inefficient. Well, I, I, I've talked about this before, that when you say, you know, back then they used to change the speed of the truck quite often because it's the fastest mm-hmm. way to improve fuel economy, right? <clears throat> yes. It, yes. It, it's For a fleet, it's yep. the fastest, easiest way. Now, you have the problem the drivers don't like it. I get all that. But there's no doubt. Yep. You want to save fuel economy, slow down. It's the thing that works instantly yep. and didn't cost you any money up front to do it. And if you do it properly, it yes. won't cost well, you money in the long run. It'll save you money. But that I, I figured it, that it, out. It always, always does. Yeah. When I bought that truck from Swift, yeah. that was governed at 57 <laughs> miles an hour. That was their speed uh, at the time. They had it figured out. Right. And and that that truck, the way Swift bought it and put it on the road, that truck in the early '90s was beating the fleet average, the national average today, 30, oh, 30 mm-hmm. years later. 
that truck was getting seven plus miles to the gallon, totally stock the way they bought it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you look at this, um, in, you know, from the perspective of they talk about speed limiters and stuff. And one of the arguments is, oh, if you slow trucks down, it's going to hurt the economy and it's going to cost billions of dollars. It's just the opposite. Correct. When we slow right. them down, the fuel savings, maintenance savings, safety and pollution reduction more than offset oh, the productivity more. penalty way more it's not even close so and, but nobody sees that so let's get right to the heart of this what we're doing uh the one industry that trucking probably complains about the most you don't hear it a lot now you steer it all the time they, they want to blame everything on the oil companies well well why are they charging us so much for this fuel they make a gazillion dollars a year at, at <laughs> fine that, that they do uh-huh. but you're the one making them more profitable Yes. Under our yes. current system, the only winner are the oil companies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, well, the only reason the oil companies are winner is our ignorance. Exactly. As an industry. Right. Right. We yeah. reward yeah, them yeah, with our laziness and ignorance. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. We're, we're, we're lazy and ignorant. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh my gosh! I know. We should probably uh, take know, some I'm, calls. You know, I'm going to get my ass kicked at some point today. Somebody's going to there. He is. <laughs> I, I mean, the truth hurts, and you have to look in the mirror. We you do. Just do. Yeah. If you don't look at the mirror and look at yourself and saying how and why am I screwing this up? You're never going to fix the problem. And so, until we, we as an industry are willing to say we're ignorant and we're lazy when it comes to efficiency. Um, we're never going to fix that problem. So here's my solution. I'm, I'm going to do everything I can think of to do in my control. I'm going to come on shows sometimes and talk about this. Just try to kind of, you know, scold the industry a little bit. And we should all just be doing better. Um, but more mm-hmm. importantly than that, um, our, our kind of new focus. Uh, and I'm excited about this. There's a lot going on right now. Um, you and I would certainly agree on this. Your operation right now, the way you are running your operation, I believe, is by far the most efficient way to move freight in this country. A, a single truck owner operator, you've even put a driver on, so now you're, you're more productive and efficient doing it as a team with lots of skin in the game. That to me, and, and you're showing it, you're, you're almost, I mean, we're not that far off. You're almost doubling the fuel economy. Correct. You're not that far off from, from actually double, which sounds insane that that could be possible. Mm-hmm. So our goal, our everything we're doing kind of going forward, we have three or four programs we're all bringing together. There's a lot going on. Our goal is to create as many one truck carriers as we can. Yeah. But you have to work smart. Right, absolutely. You have to work smart. Yes, you have to be educated. You have to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Because if you don't understand it, it gets to be old shit. Yeah. Everybody yeah. else is doing something different. You're the only one doing it. They're all <laughs> giggling at you, pointing at you, and, you know, calling you every other. I mean, so, yeah, it just it gets crazy. And if you don't truly understand why you're doing what you're doing, it ain't going to last. Well, that, that's... I know exactly why I do what I do, and I don't give a damn who says what. They can all <laughs> kiss my butt. Uh, I know exactly why I'm doing what well, I'm doing, and 
um, it works. Yeah, and that, that, that's there's, there's our no doubt. That's our part in this. The, the part we're going to play, everything yep. I'm doing is how do we educate people to become those super productive, super efficient one-truck carriers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's uh, a, a, a great um, path forward. It, it really is. Um, small carrier, very well-educated, very well-trained, understands concepts, understands the ideas behind everything. Um, it's kind of amazing how simple trucking really becomes it, and how it, much stress just kind of goes away. It, it really can be. It, it really, I, I don't want to say it's easy, but it is simple. It's not complicated. The formula we're going to put, to, um, it, the formula I've already put together. Now, there's a lot of information. I'm actually looking at, mm-hmm. uh, I'm building a virtual CMC, basically. You know, the, we love the CMC. It was an awesome mm-hmm. program, but it's hard to put 400 owner operators in the same room for a week. That, that's a huge mm-hmm. challenge. And, and part of the challenge was try to make money doing it. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the cost of putting on that event is like a half a million dollars. I mean, it's insane what it costs yeah. to put that on. So, so now yeah. you've got to be able to charge somebody enough that we actually make a profit doing it. And even then, it's right. still only five days out of the year. So right. we're, we're really looking at it, It's timing. You know, this, this is not a new idea for me. I've had this idea for a long, long time. But I think a lot of things have come together to make it the right time to do this. Technology makes it much, much easier to run like you're running right now. There's a single. T- when it comes to kind of technology and efficiency along those lines, it, it, there isn't a big carrier in the country that has anything on how you're operating. You have access to all the same kind of powerful technology they have, and it's cheap. Yeah, I I will crush any major carrier out there in regards to efficiency. I don't care who it is. Bring them. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) exactly. That's just my attitude. You know, that's what I I get excited about. You know, come come show me what you got. You know what I mean? And and, uh, it's awesome that today's technology, when we're talking about the Internet and, and the social media groups, enables a single guy like me from out in the middle of Cornfield, Ohio, <laughs> to educate themselves to the level that I've been able to do it, where now I've got, you know, very well pedigreed engineers from Sweden and India calling me, yeah. wanting to know how are you doing what you're doing and can you fly over here and show us. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. <laughs> that's yeah. pretty damn cool. And- um, so it's, it, you know, there's, I can't say enough about education, 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 research, 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 do your homework. Don't do what everybody's doing. If you're doing the same thing everybody else is doing, you're probably doing it wrong. Uh, Yes. You can almost guarantee it. So, and there's one more factor that has kind of really pushed me to say, this is the time. You know, if, if I didn't already think it was the time, there's one more. And that's the issue that I'm just getting tired of, of even thinking about or dealing with, and it gets worse every week, is this attack on the independent contractor model. Mm-hmm. It, it is everywhere now. I mean, states are doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, the federal government's talking about it. I, I don't understand. Well, I do. It's, I, I just think it's more government control. They don't like independent contractors because they're harder to control than employees. 
So sure, yeah. control, the, control the masses. I, the good news I suppose, in trucking yeah. is we have a quick, easy way out. If you come in and say, like, California's already done it, it's illegal to be leased to a carrier in California. Mm-hmm. And that could go nationwide. There's a couple other states looking at it. The good news is we have an easy out. All we have to do is go get our authority, get authority. and that the whole independent contractor Correct. model goes away. Yeah, that, that's what I done. I, I yeah. looked at it. Yep. And just for all of the reasons that you're talking about, I've seen all of the the bullshit swirling. The storm is out there. And I was like, you know what? I just want to avoid this. I'm going to spend more money than I wanted to. There's no doubt to get started. But I thought it was the right thing to do because I didn't want to have to deal with all all the nonsense in that regard. And it, it allows me to do some things. Now, that being said, I have my own authority. And I figured out I'm still better off working for Omega. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, and I believe a lot of that will happen. You know, Landstar is a good example. People always want to pick on Landstar. But you look at the model they built. It's unique. It's been very successful. And they kind of bridged the gap. You know, they said, look, you you can be an independent contractor. We'll take care of all that stuff you don't want to deal with. uh, But we'll still give you really unlimited freedom. You do whatever you want. Dispatch yourself. Stay home. We don't care. Um, That was a good model. And all that will happen if the government forces that model to go away is all of those BCOs will get their own authority and they'll just work for Landstar's brokerage. Uh, yeah, right, right, and and you're exactly right. In fact, I think things things may even get better because just like you talked about, there's a lot of people out here that get into trucking and they think, well, I just work whenever I want to work. Uh, in reality, it generally doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> not, not if you're going to have any kind of success. You're going right, to work your ass right. off. Um, and if you don't want to work your ass off, you're probably better off being a company driver. Yes, just, I completely If you don't agree. have the work ethic... You want to take a lot of time off? No, I, I guess you can go buy a really cheap truck and park it for three, four, five months out of the year and just run it on occasion and and, and make some money that way. I, that, to me, that's never really clicked in my mind. Right. I haven't really sat down and thought about it a lot, but it's just not not the time. It's just never brought up that way. I could never do that. It, you'll you'll <laughs> think just, you'll, you'll think I mean? about it when you're eighty. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, hey, one other thing real quick on the fuel mileage, because uh, Matt just sent me his uh-huh. 2023 numbers. Um, I forget uh-huh. it. Matt's got an early 2000 truck, I think. Cat, kind of pre-emission. Uh-huh. I can't remember all of his specs, but we're talking a, a 20-year-old truck plus. And keeping mm-hmm. in mind that the industry is still stuck at 6.6. Um, Matt, mm-hmm. and here's the other thing we know about Matt. He he runs hard. I, I, I'll ask mm-hmm. him, well, oh, no, I know right here. Almost 160,000 miles with one driver. Mm-hmm. That's running hard. Mm-hmm. So anybody who wants to say, oh, if you slow down, you can't get enough miles. <laughs> is 160,000 miles a year not enough? That, to me, sounds insane. That's a lot of work. But even running that hard with a 20-plus-year-old truck, his average for the entire year on all of those miles, 8.43. Yeah. That's impressive. Look, just 
I know a guy that's running an old two-stroke Detroit, getting almost seven out of it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, but you know, it, it's a lot of it is the driver, your motivation, your understanding of why it's important to be efficient and how to be efficient, and the concepts behind efficiency. If you don't understand any of that stuff, and you're out here for the lifestyle, or because you think driving truck is cool. Um, you're going to really struggle in down markets. You you just are. Yeah, and, you know, and we're it, seeing it's, it. It's yeah, it's, yeah. It's it's crazy. So, All right. I, uh, I hats off to Matt. I mean, he's doing a hell of a good job with what he's got. One of these days, he's going to buy himself an eye torque, and he's going to be he's going to be gonna killing be at eleven it. miles a gallon, right. and, and he's really going to kill it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Hey, we should probably get to some calls. Our our phone lines are totally slammed. Sure. I don't see um, I don't see either Henry or Alec in here, so I guess we'll uh, we'll carry on without them for now. Let's go to Herschel. You've been here a while. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. What's on your mind today? Howdy, howdy. Well, Joel, uh, I'm sure you remember. I've talked to you so many times. This one's an 18 VGT mm-hmm. with the 12 speed and the 264, the XC package. Mm-hmm. You have talked about the injector cleaner version from Hot Shot Secret. I do mm-hmm. use the EDT. What dosage and how often do you use that product? I use it every 10,000 miles. Um, and the, what is it, the one-quart bottle does 160 gallons. I have a 150-gallon tank. Every 10,000 miles, I dump a bottle in, in, in the tank. Okay, so you don't consider that you already have cetane booster from the EDT. You just dump it and, oh, well, you got yes, more cetane. Yes, you you cannot overdo cetane. Uh, there's no such well, thing as too much cetane. I was thinking about wasting the product that I'm dumping in Well, because I've already got the cetane. You know what I mean? So I'm not... Y- I'm not using it for the cetane. It just has concentrated detergents, and all I'm looking to do is keep those injector tips clean, especially on a Volvo with a wave piston. Um, I, I think you've got nine-hole injectors on there, and the newest version, they're extremely small, um, and the it's precision. Obviously, the injectors are more precision than ever, and I don't want the IDIDs um, gumming up the works. And... Listen, I'm going to tell you guys this. People can believe it if they want to or not. I know I've told the story where my brother, Ploger Transportation, several years ago, we got into a down market. Um, My sister-in-law, she's a bean counter, and she said, we're not paying for fuel treatment anymore. It doesn't make sense. Our cost went up, and they started using the fuel treatment again, and our cost came right back down uh, to historic norms. Again, in the tough times, she says, no more fuel treatment. They quit using fuel treatment, but they continued to dose the little bottles they gave it to the drivers. They had just filled it with diesel fuel. Now, with today's technology, my brother's cell phone would get all the little what people call ghost codes or intermittent codes coming to his phone. He said it exploded and drove him nuts. It was constant, you know, just short injector codes constantly. And he, he said they were starting to have to replace injectors again, and things just got, got bad. And they started putting the stuff back in. He said his phone just went quiet. No more injector codes. 
and it's it's not the ones that show up on the dash. I don't know exactly know how this works, but they they get codes that will will pop just momentarily. And he said it was just flooding his phone with it. So he's a huge believer in it, and um, I, I've always been a believer. And I can feel it in the seat of my pants. I know I'm probably a little more in touch with how my truck is supposed to feel and perform than a lot of people. But there is no doubt in my mind that treating fuel absolutely makes sense. There is no doubt about it. And as the truck becomes more complex and the engines are more complex, uh, the tolerances get tighter and tighter. They're not going to tolerate a little bit of carbon buildup. And so we need to keep things clean. And the stuff's proven. It absolutely works. You look under it with an electron microscope, and it cleans things up. So, um, you know, that's what I do. Every 10,000 miles, a diesel extreme goes in. I run EDT the rest of the time at the performance dose. And I just I don't have injector problems. Okay, then let me ask you this one. This one, of course, being the 264. At mm-hmm. 55 miles an hour, which is what I've been doing since I got this thing, it puts mm-hmm. me at 1250 because I have the container. Mm-hmm. It's 20 footer. It's way behind me the whole sure. nine yards. Sure. But I have I have heard you talk about efficiencies inside the eye shift mm-hmm. at 55 miles an hour and 1250, mm-hmm. or at 61, and I have to go 61 or it wants to shift to 11 back to 12. So if I go to 61. It'll just hold 12th gear without having to put it into manual. When I do mm-hmm. that, that puts my tack at 1,100. Now, you mm-hmm. are six miles an hour faster. Mm-hmm. What do you think the odds are between the two? Which way are you truly better efficiency-wise? That will change. That will change every day. It is based on the actual power demand. If it's a very warm sure. day and you've got a relatively light load, power demand is low, you may actually do better at 61 because you have your engine's going to be making more boost with lower piston speed. That actually equals efficiency. And if it's a very cold day and you're heavy, you're probably going to be better off in direct drive. So it's all about power demand. And you have to understand what this cold weather, how does that impact air density and impact your aerodynamics, especially with that container way back there. So what I do and what you're going to have to do will be two completely different things. I would suspect you will spend more time in direct drive rather than overdrive based on your aerodynamics and, and not necessarily the weight that you're pulling. With me, I'm much more aero, so it's going to be more more about the weight that I'm pulling and what gear I'm in. So it is confusing at times, but it boils down to power demand. When you have low power demand, you want to be in overdrive. That is what overdrive was originally conceived for. Overdrive divides torque. Torque is what moves the load. It's that force applied. When you're light, you want to be in overdrive. When the power demand is high, going up a hill, heavy, bad aerodynamics, you want to be in direct drive. And you can never say, I just want to run in direct, because that's only going to work at certain times. You have to know when to use overdrive and when to use direct drive. And you start to get a feel for it once you understand it's all just based on power demand. Right, right. Well, I'm never going to do what your purple truck does, but... For no, this one, no. being, 
being VGT, being the containers, mm-hmm. Ohio, West Virginia, my 90-day is still 8.04. So, oh, you're doing excellent. For, yeah. you gotta, That's not too you're shabby. Ugly uh, truck aerodynamically as you can get with those short little containers and that huge gap. That's what they call putting two fronts to the wind. So you have a very, very <laughs> challenging duty cycle. Your numbers are excellent for that duty cycle. There's no doubt about it. Hey. Moving forward, as technology gets better, are there going to be better options for you? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, you have to balance it with what does that technology cost. And right now you got a pretty good setup for what you're doing. Don't they also put so the, for this- the, the most fuel-efficient, low-rolling resistant tires on those containers, though? Uh, yeah, those five ply recaps. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, they, they still have tubes, Captain. Okay, <laughs> they're still tube tight. <laughs> yeah, would so, you consider so, his his duty cycle? Oh I yeah, mean, that, he's kicking ass. Yeah, just, you are. There is no doubt about it. Yeah. So, Kevin, or well, I guess Kevin or Joel, this one being the VGT. Every time I look at Air Dog, I do nothing but get confused. They've got too many options. Which one no, is don't. the correct? Uh, I so think they do. They got, there's they got only two. They got one you can screw onto the builder. Okay. Oh, no, 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 no. For a Volvo, they have one option for you, the Air Dog. Now, they, they are making a replacement for the factory fuel filter head because that cracks a lot. It's uh, one of the things that just has always kind of bugged me about Volvo is that fuel filter head's a piece of junk. It just is. It cracks. It breaks. It it leaks. I, it, it's junk. So they've got a, a billet aluminum a fuel filter head that they did um, incorporate some air removal technology, you know, after the fact. And I don't want to say air removal. Let's call it inert gases or vapor because that's that's what it is. It's not necessarily air once it gets past the the OEM filter. You have the nucleation points I've always talked about, and that creates vapor in the fuel, and it, it removes that vapor and spits it back out in the return line. But in terms of the air dog itself, you've got one option for the for the Volvo, and that's it. When you call Jay at Air Dog, he will say, nope, it's this model, and I don't remember what the model number is right off the top of my head, and that replaces your if you have a DAVCO, it will replace your DAVCO. Okay, so then do you just take the DAVCO away and take yeah, the, the DAVCO feed goes away. And the re- take the feed yeah. and the return line and plug it into the air dog and get a battery source, or do you even need a battery source? Uh, uh, no, you, you need a battery source because it is that's okay. part of the here's especially with you and well, I would got suspect lift. that you got a lift pump. You're it? gonna. Well, it, it does, and we we call it a lift pump, but maybe that's not the best description because a lot of people are confused on why this works and how it works, and you get people who tell you it can't work and yada, yada, uh, especially when you got an older truck and you're trying to run it at lower RPM. So here's, here's what you need to keep in mind. Uh, mechanical gear pumps, fuel pumps that are on the truck have an efficiency curve to them. They operate most efficiently at a certain RPM, and that is totally dependent upon the engine RPM. When that fuel pump is off its efficiency curve, whether it's spinning too fast or too slow, and that's what we want to focus on, it creates cavitation on the front side of the pump. That cavitation, they're imploding molecules that will eat away at the fuel pump, and those molecules, some of them will get actually get by the pump into the system, and they will implode in the injectors, and it causes injector wear. Uh, 
so what the air dog does is when you are operating at low RPM, your fuel pump may not be at optimal efficiency. It's just putting gentle pressure to the front of that pump and it relieves that cavitation. That hmm. will result in slightly higher fuel pressure on the backside because you're not putting that inert gas into the system. You're eliminating that. So you're just putting gentle pressure. It doesn't have to be high pressure. It's just a nice gentle pressure that kind of um, keeps the, the gears, uh, the gear pump full, essentially. So you're not getting that cavitation on the front side of the pump. I go another step, and AirDog has went another step with the fuel filter head for the Volvo, where they said, okay, now every twist and turn on the back side of the pump creates a localized hot spot where molecules nucleate. Um, they implode on each other, and this is why we have all the black stuff in diesel fuel that creates asphaltines, because when they implode, it creates a carbon molecule. And what the 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 fuel head replacement does is it it relieves a lot of that nucleation uh, vapors or inert gases before they make it to the injection system. So it's just a second line of defense. Yep. Okay. All right. And you but think there, that that it, will that air dog will it help efficiency to a degree? It well here's here's what happened when we dyno test them. So when you look at the dyno chart. What we are worried about is, okay, let's, let's see, where should I start here? So when you take an efficiency curve, when you take an efficiency curve or a power curve of any engine, um, let's, let's cut it right down at 1,350 RPM. When you are on the left side of the curve, that's the money side of the curve. That's the lower RPM. This is where we want to make torque and horsepower because our piston speed is low, our pumping losses are low, our thermodynamics are high. The front side of the power curve is the money side. The back side is the drag racer side. That's typically where you see six, 700 horsepower. You've got very high pumping losses. You've got very high piston speeds. You've got all kinds of mechanical drag and efficiency just falls like a rock. So when we operate on the front side of the curve, when we dyno it with the air dog versus without, we see about a 40 pound feet increase in torque from 800 to 1100 RPM. That's the force applied. So some people will right away, they'll convert that to horsepower and go, oh, it's only four or five horsepower. I don't care about the horsepower. What I care about is the force applied. That's efficiency. When we can apply more force for almost no fuel, you're going to increase efficiency. It's up to you as to whether you realize the efficiency if you're operating at low RPM. You're going to see an efficiency gain, and it's going to feel better. The throttle response will feel better because you have more applied force. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. I'll let you go so you can get to somebody else. All right. Thanks for the call. Uh, hey, Joel, real quick before we get to uh, mm -hmm. more calls. we got lots of them, too. Uh, did you ever read the book? I think we talked about it a couple times when I read it. I talked about it a lot for a couple weeks. Um, the end of the world is just the beginning. 
We have talked about this a couple of times. I haven't had time to read anything. I've been so busy. I would love to, though. Maybe get it on audio. Get it on audio. This week, get it on audio and listen to it. Here's why. I I think I told you that that when I was reading the book, the guy had me so convinced he was completely correct. I mean, he just does a really good job. And... I, I didn't. I had never heard of the guy before I read the book, but I went and looked him up. We're, we're we're not all that close politically. There's a lot of stuff I would not agree with with this guy, but he had me completely mm-hmm. convinced. He made such a great argument, and his argument was that mm-hmm. all this worldwide shipping we're doing is going to disappear. It's too complicated. Correct. It's too expensive. It, we don't have enough people to support it, and he said it's it's just going to come to an end. We're not going to be able to ship stuff all over the world because the U.S. is going to have to stop protecting all these ships. We can't afford it. It, A lot of it made sense, but it was like this. How is this going to occur? You know, okay, you've convinced Mm -hmm. me that that this could possibly happen. What's going to be the catalyst? When is this going to happen and why? That was the one piece that I I just wasn't real clear on. Well, the crazy thing is, Mm -hmm. look at the news today. It's happening. We can't get ships mm-hmm. through the Red Sea because they're being attacked. Yeah. This is yeah. exactly what yep. this guy predicted in the book, and it's happening. And isn't it isn't it weird, just, and just a little off subject, but isn't it weird how the war over there, the battles are shaping up as an economic thing? Yeah. They're sending over $25 drones. We're shooting them down with a million-dollar <laughs> missile. That's not sustainable. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good Um, point. Yeah. Yeah, that's Uh, a war of attrition right there when you start to think about it. I mean, uh, we can't afford to do that forever. We can do it for a while, but we can't afford to do it forever. So what your your statement is is just is just spot on. We cannot afford to police the world when you can use twenty five dollar weapons to challenge million dollar missiles. And and they're doing it. I mean we're shooting them down, but it's still a challenge and it's costly. Or or you can stick a bunch of people in a basement somewhere in Moscow or China or North Korea and take down our electrical grid over the Internet. Correct. Yes. Well, you know, this is the weird thing with China. So um, they like to uh, saber rattle and, you know, they talk all this stuff on one end. And then on the other end, they build the world's largest container, nuclear-powered container transport ship to send stuff over here. (laughs) So I'm I'm trying to figure out, if they want to blow us to smithereens, what in the hell are they spending all this money building these containers for? Or these ships, I don't get it, but it is what it is. Listen to the book this week. That'll be our show next week. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and, and download yeah. it and listen to it. Yeah, it's, 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 like I said, I thought it was a really intriguing book when I listened to it, and then I put it aside and said, well, yeah, it, maybe that is going to happen someday. I'm not sure what the catalyst and, – and all of a sudden you look around at the news and go, wait a minute, it's kind of happening right now. Hey, yeah. Uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up real quick before we go to phone calls, and, and I know this has been a real hot topic, and I've, I've had a lot of people – you know, on, on either side of the fence here, but we're all aware of the, the Cummins verdict that came out. And um, my take on this, every single OEM at one point or another has been fined for emissions issues. That's not uncommon. Right. Um, cheating was very common early on. 
I, a lot of people are just having a fit about EPA finding Cummins. Just keep in mind, Cummins admitted to installing cheap devices. They flat out admitted <laughs> that, to that, That's no, pretty blatant. Saying, we didn't do anything wrong. Right. It, and we know, we know why they are settling, because if you settle, then you conceal what happened. Yep, right. 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 If it goes well, to judgment, then everybody's going to see what happened. So you just say, okay, yeah, there was a cheat device, but I didn't do anything wrong, and and then you're you're kind of done with it. Well, I'm not picking on Cummins as a company, but here's another thing. You know, we love to beat up on EPA. This is not EPA being evil. This is EPA protecting consumers. From wrongdoing, basically, what it boils down to, that pickup truck market is super competitive, and every one of those manufacturers are going to push the limit right out to the right out to the edge. Uh, me and Henry talked about this. He said, "Hey, that's a race car driver mentality. Let's let's <laughs> interpret it a little bit different." And that's probably what happened. Right. There was an interpretation somewhere along the line that could be taken a couple of different ways, and they said, "You know what? We can gain ten horsepower. They're going to sell." 500,000 more trucks because of that 10 horsepower. Let's do it this way. So you're right. And bigger picture, I I get this frustrates me because we've created a system where the consumer becomes the ultimate loser, even though the government or the EPA may be trying to protect the consumer. I get that. But here's a couple other examples of the same kind of stuff happening. Um, FedEx, for example, I was contracted to them forever. So I went through this multiple times over the years. The government would come in every so many years and go, oh, you know, you're not treating these guys like independent contractors. They're employees. We're going to make them employees. We go through all this. And at the end, what happens is FedEx writes a big check and the government goes away and nothing really Uh changes. That the, the FedEx system mm-hmm. is primarily the same as it was 30 years ago when I leased my truck onto them. It, they make a couple minor mm-hmm. changes to some wording in the contract. They write the government a big check and they go away. Here's another example. Yeah. Uh, and nobody's protected or helped or anything else. Here's another example that makes me crazy. You watch all these drug commercials on TV, right? And at some yep. point I realized... Hey, they're advertising that drug for multiple diseases that they can't do that. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely illegal. They only it costs Mm -hmm. like, I don't know anymore. It's like three hundred million dollars to get a drug approved through the FDA. Um, It's it's Mm -hmm. an expensive process. So these companies only get the drug approved for one condition or one disease. They're not going to go do this again for a different disease. So. And doctors are allowed to prescribe any drug they want to any human being for any purpose. Doctors are given the discretion on that. So what these companies do is they absolutely knowingly break the rules. They advertise the drug for diseases it's never been tested for, knowing it's completely illegal because they know they're going to sell enough drugs because of that that they can pay all the fines. And it's just a cost so, of doing business. It, it, you're, you're exactly right. Here's, here's an even better example of this. Cigarettes. Yeah. We know they kill you. <laughs> we know they make you sick. You talk about pol- air pollution. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a direct pipeline to yeah, your lungs. Right. Yet they're still legal. <laughs> they love that tax money they're collecting, right? <laughs> right. And, and the pharmaceutical companies love to invent cures to fix 
yeah. whatever cancer you get. There you go. Cigarette smoking. <laughs> there is absolutely no doubt if you were completely concerned and you wanted to be honest and say, okay, you know, this is bad. We need to get rid of it. Hell no. They want that right. money. Yeah. And, and the pharmacy, the big pharmaceutical, they want to be able to sell the drugs. So we, we still have cigarettes, you know. Yeah. It's gotten better over the years. People have gotten smarter and but whatnot. But, man, you remember back in the well, day, everybody I, was smoking. Speaking was of this, since, since you brought up tobacco, and I was just, this is like exploded this morning for some reason, this whole Zinn phenomenon. Have you seen that? I have not. Zinn is this... It, the, the companies in Sweden, they are little pouches, kind of like a chewing tobacco kind of pouch, but it's not tobacco. Okay. It's basically just pure nicotine. So I guess from what people just, wow. it, the big thing today, um, Freight Waves wrote this big, long article about Zinn and freight brokers. Because I guess putting one of these things in your mouth, and they say, like, you hold it in your cheek for an hour, and this article said, don't do that. It's like drinking four Monster Energy drinks back to back. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. This can't be good. Wow. I'm sorry. This just can't be healthy. The one guy described it. He said, my chest feels like a dryer with shoes in it. His heart was pumping so hard. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. That can't be good for us. No. No, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Wow. Uh, all right. Hey, we, uh, we're, we're going to add to the fun. Henry's here with us. Henry, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing today? Good. Good. You're late. I'm going to dock your pay. No. Well, I was here on time. Just nobody answered. I, uh, really? Maybe we had too many calls because yeah. Joel and I have just been bullshitting all morning. <laughs> yeah, I was on uh, on three 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 till. Yeah, we probably probably had just too many calls. This Friday show is becoming very popular. Our numbers are increasing. That's a good thing. That's always a good thing. Hey, speaking of which, now yeah, that I, I heard now Joel that, talking about that, we had a fun conversation on that. Looking at. The rules, the way a racer looks at the rules, which is what I think a lot of these people end up doing because, you know, it, it always goes back to, I remember with Smokey Eunuch, they, they, they had a fuel tank limit in NASCAR, but they didn't say what size the fuel line could be or how long it could be. <laughs> oh, so oh I, 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 it took me a couple minutes i'm like what the hell does that have to do with anything <laughs> then it dawned on me oh now i get it yeah i had to yeah, think like a racer hold a couple gallons yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> i had to think like a racer for a second which, there. which is where i think epa's wrong you know that you know they're all looking to you know have everything just wonderful, right? And they're dealing with people that have a racing mentality because, you know, a lot of the people that design these engines and programs, they have a motorsports-type background or head on their shoulders. And I always remembered when I read Smokey Eunuch's book, one of the things that came out of there was never read what the rules say, look for what they don't say. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. And that that's exactly why... Um, we have ended up with 47-page lease contracts when they used to be one or two pages. Well, that's why NASCAR's rule book is so thick, because right. the people like it, to smoke the unit. <laughs> you but, find the ways around what they didn't say, and then they have to keep adding all that stuff. Hey, we do have to get some calls, but before I do, I, I want you guys to start thinking about something. You too. 
Now, this is just, there's nothing in the works here on this yet. I'm just looking ahead at what's going on in the industry and looking for opportunities. And um, I want you two to be thinking, we, we've talked about this before. It, it is a challenge. There's no doubt about it. One truck, one guy, total control. You can do things like you guys are doing, get 10, 11, 12 miles to the gallon sometimes. Fleets will never, ever be able to do that. I, I get that. But we have to find a way to... They will, but we'll be doing 15. Well, right, yeah. Um, I want to find a way to make this industry more efficient. We're going to do it with those one-truck carriers, no doubt. That's a big program for us. There's something else I'm just working on, big picture idea, nothing really in the works yet. But I want the three of us to start thinking, what could we do for, say, 25 truck fleets and under? Could we come up with programs to, to add a mile, a mile and a half, two miles to the gallon to their average without massive disruptions and, you know, driver issues and all the other things that we know can come up. I, I have to believe that the three you know, of us are yeah, smart enough I think we can. that we could come up with you something. You know I lived that for, for 15, 18 exactly. years, right? Yep, exactly. That's, <laughs> you're, you're talking about what my, what my brother right. was. Right. You know, we were in that size range for a long time. So there are some things that can be done. Uh, there's no doubt. So, yeah, we'll all get together and, and, and talk about that. Yeah, I, I think there's there's going – I think there already is, but I think, you know, going forward, there's going to be a huge opportunity for that. It's a big part of the market. It, just think if we could just come it's up with a program. The part that, of the market. Yeah, exactly. And just think if we could come up with a program that said, look, here's a pretty easy way. We're, we're going to grab the low-hanging fruit first. We've thought this through. We've put it together so it doesn't cause huge disruptions. It's not going to be a big driver issue. In fact, maybe we can even make it a positive thing for the drivers. If we could do that and had one mile per gallon, if we had a program that said, look, implement this, you get one more mile per gallon, you're not going to have a bunch of disruptions, that would be huge. Mm-hmm. And the first mile of the gallon is yeah. pretty easy to find. That's what I mean. I, I it. I'm not trying to get fleets to 10 miles to the gallon or even nine miles to the gallon. It's not going to happen. We know why. But what if we really just put our mind to it and said, how do we get that one more mile per gallon, the low-hanging fruit that we know is out there? You know what, Kevin? You know, looking at that model, I look at Nussbaum up there in Hudson, Illinois, and their fleet average is like nine four, and they have the, over a hundred trucks of their five hundred truck fleet that are averaging better than ten. That's incredible. And here's the other thing that gets me: why aren't there at least thirty other fleets copying whatever the hell they're doing? It can't be that hard to go figure out. Here's well, what, here's what, part of what that. I find, Kevin, and, when when I go out and I end up doing some consulting here and there. Most places don't even know what tire pressure to run. No, I know. I, 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 well, I just saw like somebody <laughs> from the damn maintenance council making a recommendation to just run 100 in all your tires. Well, let's just make it simple. I, that's all they're doing there. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Well, it, it, <laughs> day-to-day operations in that small to mid-sized fleet has to be brought down to the simplest level. Yes. Um, getting help these days is very difficult. So <clears throat> during my time at Ploger, we would benchmark and talk with a lot of fleets that were in that 25 to 100 truck range and 
a lot of people talked about, you know, uh, fuel efficiency. There were some fleets that would really embrace it. There were other fleets that didn't. What we found in a fleet application a lot of times, and what you're talking about earlier, making it simple and, and not disruptive is key. Uh, some of these fleets that were getting this great fuel efficiency because it was so disruptive and they had to spend so much extra money. It was a wash. It, Their right. numbers looked good. Right. But they really weren't making any more money because of the disruption to the operation. So implementation and strategy are key here. You're you're 100% right. And that's, you know, uh, these fleets talk. They, they talk to the guys that are, are getting the big mileage. Um, we have a fleet locally to us that's a reefer fleet that they are very much into fuel efficiency. And uh, they flat out said, <laughs> it's a wash. You know, we, we do it because... It's uh, it's good. Uh, it's good press. But are we really making any more money because of it? No. Here's why I want to. And they and had the wings, the wings on the on the back of the the doors of the trailers, and you know they, oh, they yeah. went all out on it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, we've got Alec in here now as well. So Alec, good morning. Hey, did you hear that about the twenty five truck fleet? Because I want you to be a part of that as well. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. So no, it, I did, and uh, I've been listening to everybody drinking Monster. <laughs> and uh, the Swedish, uh, stuff. Uh, that's why I was late. I was placing my order online. <laughs> you were ordering a bunch of Zen, huh? Yeah. Um, here's one of the reasons why I want to target, say, 25 truck fleets and under. On a 25 truck fleet, there's going to be one person I can go deal with that can make the decision. It's going to be the owner. He's still going to be very, very actively involved. He's not going to have a bunch of management people in the middle that, you know, everybody's going to argue and bicker and say, we can't do that because it's going to screw this up. And I, I think that might be the sweet spot of more trucks instead of doing it one truck at a time, which I'm going to continue doing. You get a much bigger hit. If we could go into a, a 25 truck fleet and improve them by one mile per gallon, that's huge. And so, you start to get bigger than that, then you start to get the maintenance guy involved and the shop manager, and and now it becomes a nightmare. We had pegged that number at 15. Okay. And we always said that at 15 trucks, the owner's personality drives the company. Yes. Yep. That's and that's going to be your one thinking. point of company. Yeah. That if, if the owner has a strong personality, he is going to be able to dictate to everybody in that organization, what to do, when to do, how to do it. Yep. And and that's the way it should be. Once you get past 15, then it really starts to become difficult because then you got dispatchers making decisions. You've got a shop manager. Yeah. Generally, there's a, there's a lot of things going on there. So so you're exactly right. You've got to you've got to get that fleet where the owner is engaged. He understands and he has a very strong personality in order to put these things in, in the practice. Two points on that, Kevin, uh, and I haven't looked at it in a while, but I know the old FMCSA figure was 97.3% of the fleets on the road are 20 and under. I know. I, it is. It, we talk about that all the time, and I'm not sure we take a step back and really look at how big of a deal that is. That's a big deal. And think about how big that is, because right. you've got huge companies like Landstar. Right. If you're leased to them, you count as part of a fleet, not as an owner-operator. Correct. Right. So, th so that number I is a very significant number. That that's a big, big deal. What back to the tires and tire pressure? I'll never forget along that line, 
as far as how simple it was. I was at this fleet, and the shop guy that was in charge of the maintenance had changed to lower rolling resistance tires and did better on fuel, and, and it all worked out the mass. But the problem was his bonus was paid on the cost expense of the shop and the maintenance, and the fuel people were happy, but they came down on him, hey, you're spending too much on tires. <laughs> So he, he said, I switched. Yeah. He says, I put the longest lasting tires on them trucks. I don't care. Yeah. Well, and, and there, yeah. again, this is all going to come back to education. That's how we started this earlier. If, if we're going to make, you know, really, really efficient one truck owner operator fleets, one, you know, one truck carriers, it's all education. If we're going to go after 25 truck fleets and try to make them more efficient, it's education times 10. There's more nuance. There's, well, there's yeah. so much more to take into account, and it's going to require a lot of education. But what I'm thinking is if the, the four of us now put our minds to this, and I'm, I'm not saying you know we work on it nonstop, but keep it in the back of your mind, and when you're working on ideas, I, I, I'm thinking almost like... Uh, you got to bundle stuff. You know, if you go in and go, hey, look, if you do this, you pick up three-tenths. If you do this, we pick up eight-tenths. And pretty soon they're looking at that. They're just going to shut down because it's too hard to understand a lot of these things. Were, but if you put a bundle together, for, for and again, that's why we're going to target a specific fleet. They have the same issues. And we could look at it and go, yeah, we can't disrupt the drivers. We can't expect them to make huge investments up front. But could we put together a simple program bundled that, that says, look, here's what you do and here's the results you're going to get? And I, I have to believe we could do that. Oh, yeah. Uh, sure. Just, just, just the, the, you know, especially when you get into a little bit larger, I'd like to just have the money that could be saved by putting the fifth wheel in the right spot. Uh, that's what I mean. You start <laughs> looking at the amount of money that can be generated here, whether it's profit or, and look, I would be more than willing. If we came up with a great program, we know it's going to work if you do it. Um, to me, I would have no problem walking in and say, we're not going to charge you a penny for this upfront. We just want 10% of the savings for three years. You know, Kevin, as you started to say that, I was starting to think the exact same thing. It's like, okay. Oh, yeah. Zero risk. We yeah, want to. Right. We want to. You know, part of the participation. Yeah. And uh, you know, and we can come up with a formula because we know certain things work. And they can essentially, it's zero risk. They pay for the program through their fuel savings. I mean, yeah, it's a, exactly. And I, I guess we can figure out because I know you're <laughs> you're going to love this. Um, they even come out ahead because of the depreciation deduction. They can take the 179 up front, <laughs> right? So they actually get paid to do it, right? I mean, right. Well, it starts it, to get pretty well, brilliant. It, you know, if you think about this, take take the four of us, our experience, our knowledge, the things we know. Sure, we're focused on fuel because that's the big, that's the easy, the low hanging fruit. It's quick. It, but the four of us know lots of ways to make 25 trucks more efficient, not just fuel. I, you just mentioned one, taxes. Mm -hmm. Most of these companies have horrible tax programs. They don't have a clue what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Well, and it surprises me with the smaller fleets how many people, well, I pay cash for my fuel. Yeah. And, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 yeah. Like, 
Yeah. Good for you. You know, it, it surprises me how many, as many that know about, like, Mastic, for example, well, with their I, great fuel card. It, it they, surprises me how many don't have a clue. Well, uh, I'll tell you, we actually make a mistake almost every time we talk about fuel. Because really, 99% of the time, the four of us, the, the guys that know all this stuff, the 99% of the time we're talking about fuel mileage. Why aren't we just really talking about fuel cost per mile? Ah, now that I can tell you, because there's regional differences between certain sections of the country. Oh, no doubt. I, know, I, I get it. We from Ohio, you know. But, but we know that is, there, if, you know, if we want to be the pro miles. more profitable, which is the goal here, we should understand that fuel cost how you're buying, not, you know, why pay cash? Well, that's mm-hmm. dumb. You're leaving a lot of money on the table. The way you buy fuel yep. is almost as important as all the work you're doing to get better fuel economy. And we don't talk a lot yes. about that. Not as much as we should. Whether it's using so, a good well, fuel discount program or buying in the right state because of fuel taxes, those are two big strategies that lower your overall cost. So what you're just describing is a fuel purchase optimization like ProMiles. Something along those lines, right. But, but even yeah, that exactly. doesn't and, and go then to a, the right And then a good discount program to make found- sure you're, you're paying the least amount you can based on what's out there as far as a fuel card. Uh, and you're optimizing your fuel tank size. Right. You, right. Well, you, you can go a step beyond that because I've, I've found places that have different fuel prices, but it can cost you up to $10 difference on a fill-up just by how hard it is to get in and out of the truck stop. We could get down to all kinds of nuance, right? That, that's what I mean. We, we haven't even pushed some of the other strategies, but we know them. It, it, you know, we could focus more on, on the maintenance savings you're going to have from these kind of programs. What I'm saying is these 20, 25 truck fleets, which make up the bulk of the industry, are very, very inefficient most of the time. Even though they have advantages in efficiency, how many of them do you find that are just running horribly inefficient? Most. Almost all of them. Yeah. Keep that in mind. That That's something we're probably going to be talking about more. We do have to get to some calls because we've got people that have been holding a long time. Let's go to California. Aaron, welcome. Good morning, gentlemen. I got a couple of questions for you. One's off topic for Kevin, but first, uh, Joel, um, every time... I come up to a stop sign, I often wonder, what's more economical in the long run for me? Should I be kicking my manual transmission into neutral and kind of coasting up to stop signs and then it slows down to like 35 and then use the brakes only to come to a stop? Or should I be bumping the throttle and making two, three downshifts and using the Jake brake and yeah. relieving some of the uh, usage of my brakes? Uh- I'm going to vote for the Jake brake because it uses no fuel. You're not, you're not burning fuel well, to, to use the Jake, nothing of any kind of significance, and you are saving the brake. You know, what we're really, we could start talking about, um, you don't hear this much anymore, but for a while there was a lot of emphasis on the people with cars, and they were calling them hypermilers. They were doing all kinds of crazy hacks while they were driving to just try to squeeze out a little more fuel economy. The one that made all of us crazy is drafting a truck. 
because it does actually help quite a bit. Get a couple feet behind a truck and a lot of drag goes away. Um, we haven't even talked about that kind of stuff uh, as far as efficiency. Kevin, on his statement of where he was saying slowing down, I'd say it depends. Yeah, it does. Of course it does, right? The going up uphill. Right, yeah. Let the hill slow you down. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but the idea of are there little hacks that we can do like this to improve fuel economy? And there are. Some of them aren't all that safe, but uh, some of them aren't that big of a deal. Yeah, so, Joel, what was your opinion on it? Because back 20 years ago, Schneider National taught me, you know, like, oh, every time you bump the throttle to make a downshift to, to run your jake, you're burning X amount of fuel, and it's cheaper to use the brakes. And I've, I've always wondered if there's any truth to that. Well, I can tell you that uh, Joel had to step off for just a second. So it's nice of you to call, but he's not here. But um, so that's the first thing. Secondly, uh, I'm going to uh, respectfully disagree with my post. I think using the brake is probably better because oh, Joel is back. So um, I don't know if you heard the question. But uh, um, if you use your Jake brakes, of course, that applies to brakes, which is just uh, one or two axles, depending if you're a six by two or six by four. And I think it's just going to promote excessive tire wear. And so whatever little bit you might gain, you'll lose in, in, in tire wear. Uh, that's what I think. I also just okay. think it's just excessive wear I think, and tear. But, I, I, uh, I think we need an expensive, peer-reviewed government study to prove this. No. Well, I don't know if that goes high enough. <laughs> I, think, I think we need to get a grant to study that. There we go. There, we'll settle this. Yeah. We just need a bunch of government money, yep. and we'll settle this. Well, I was hoping for yeah. a clear answer. I just got a bunch of I don't know. <laughs> You're not going to get a clear well, answer on this. Joel is here, so yeah. Hey, I, well, did I you think, hear the question? Um, hold on, let me bring him in. Um, oh, I think this go. is him. Okay. Joel, is uh, okay, this you? Are we there? Yeah. Okay, so I got the study already done for you. Oh, well, there you go. So, so I knew he would. Oh, man, we this. need money. <laughs> <laughs> now, Volvo's looked at this really hard, and it's actually, ideally, you have a combination of foundation brakes and light engine braking. Uh, Alec is exactly right. When you are on the engine brake all the time, this is why we see a lot of heel-toe wear on drive tires, especially the low rolling resistance tires. It's Jake brakes pretty hard on drive tires because you're stopping the whole load through whatever set of tires has power to it at the time. And so you do get quite a bit of tire wear running an engine brake all the time. Um, so ideally, you use light foundation brake and light engine brake together was the I- ideal way to do it. Schneider is exactly right, though. Um, if your truck is not set up to where you can run very light engine brake and foundation brake at the same time, um, it's cheaper. It's definitely cheaper to, to run the brakes than wear the drive tires. There's, there's no doubt. All right. There's another factor here. There is another factor here. I was just mm-hmm. thinking about the way, the way we ran, the way I taught my drivers and, and, and I was wondering why I didn't think about that with the exit. So I taught my drivers to use a combination of light engine brake and trailer brake. I'm not paying for those. 
no, 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 I had people leased to me. No, 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 if you go into the deep dive of trying to get fuel mileage and efficiency, you're trying to create as little heat as you can to get from point A to point B. Well, yes. So anything that's creating heat on that truck originally uh, hold, came out of the fuel tank. Uh, on the truck, but I don't care if I'm creating heat on their trailer brakes. <laughs> well, even still, that's heat still wasted up. energy. That's still, that's still I, wasted energy. I, that means I, you're on the throttle too long. I, I get that, but I'm not paying mm-hmm. for it. So there's nuance here. So you what we, have, fuel. what we have found with disc brakes especially, um, though you talked about just coasting up to a stop sign and applying the brakes right away. So a lot of guys, when they get good at this, they really they know, okay, at 65, I'm going to kick this thing into neutral here, and by the time I get to the stop sign, you know, wherever you're running, it's going to be at almost a dead stop. And then yeah. disc brakes last so much longer than drum brakes. Oh my uh, the engine brake is, man, if you're running an engine brake all the time, you're, you're, you're wearing that, tires that, that you don't need to be wearing. And, of and course, if line. you're on a wet or, sli- wet or slippery surface, yes, driveline wear. Uh, that's, that's a pretty big deal. But if you're on a slippery surface, then you're only using the, the one or two tires. Again, you want to kick things sideways. It's... Uh, uh, I'm not an engine brake fan. Only when I absolutely need it do I run it. Most of the time, I don't. That's right. Well, I, I've, I've the, made the, the argument other... that if disc brakes had it came out before the engine brake, there never would have been the engine brake. <laughs> you may not have. Yeah, that you you may you may be right on that. <laughs> you may be right. The on other that. thing to answer the caller's question. Um, when, at least on the Volvo with the I-shift, if you have the Jake brake stock in the A, the automatic position, when you use the uh, foundation brake, it will also apply a little bit of engine braking to work in concert yeah. with the foundation brake. So, so one of the, yeah, really the best really somewhere over here with the Detroit, too. You, you yep. know, one of yep. the things yep. we're yep. back to on this issue, and this comes up a lot, whether we're talking about engine tuning, using the boost gauge, all those things, what's happened is technology has changed and we need to change with it. But we also have to realize Mm -hmm. from our point of view, my point of view, especially where I'm sitting, I'm talking to people who are running mechanical engines, pre-emission electronic engines, post-emission electronic engines, new modern engines, and the answers get Mm -hmm. more and more complicated. There, there, there isn't always one answer that makes a lot of sense anymore. You got to look at the, it, the whole big picture, and it can get pretty darn complicated. We we got to move on, though. We got, we got so many calls, we're not getting to them. Aaron, I know can you I had... Can I ask one more question? Well, Adam? that's what I was going to do, Aaron. I know you had a couple questions, so go ahead. Um, so, in profit gauges, I'm trying to put together stuff for my tax guy, and I purchased a bunch of equipment uh, this year. Do I put... I pur- purchased it all outright. Do I should I put that on what, my profit gauges? You got to tell me specifically what equipment. Every one, everything you okay. bought might have a different answer. So you got to tell me what it is. Okay, I bought one tractor for uh, thirty thousand dollars, and I bought three sets of doubles. Uh, those were okay. twenty thousand so, each. So I got sixty thousand dollars worth of trailers. Did you happen to get those from Yellow? 
No. <laughs> <laughs> um, equipment. I keep out of. I keep the big purchase price of equipment out of profit gauges because you're going to depreciate that on a tax return. And even if you depreciate it using all 179, I still we don't put the purchase price of big equipment in there. If you pay cash okay. for it, you could if you wanted to, uh, but I prefer not to. I, I just prefer to leave those big purchase stuff that's going to have to get depreciated out of the the everyday business report. Okay. And another question, I I also, when I purchased this uh, truck, I immediately spent like another $11,000 on small small things like a wet kit and, you know, but a go ahead and, gauge and go ahead some and put, fasteners and this kind of stuff. Put all that Do stuff. Do I put that in it, profit gauges? Yes, put all that into profit gauges and expense it all. Okay. And the difference is right. the big ticket items we have to depreciate. The government tells us that. The small stuff we don't. We can just expense it. Okay. And since that's going to show my, you know, my cost per mile real high, it's, ma- it's making it difficult for me to just figure that's, out what, what that's my why actual we, cost per mile is. That's why we is, don't put the big ticket items in there because it messes up our daily numbers. It makes it harder to understand. And, and again, the IRS says you have to expense these over three years. Now we can use the 179, I get that, but it, it, it is better. Here's the other thing. That, that truck that you paid $30,000 for, you might keep that thing for 10 years. You know, we don't want all $30,000 looking like it's going against your current income. That $30,000 is going against income for as long as you keep this truck. So we, we, we do want to, I just prefer to keep the big ticket items out of there. So I, I will deal with it on the tax return, but I don't want it messing with my numbers every month when I'm looking at them. Okay. Is there any chance that when I went rolling into 2024 and I look at um, profit gauges, can I keep those numbers separate from 2023 so I can see what my cost per mile moving forward in 2024 is? Well, in the program, you can separate every month, every quarter, every year. I mean, all you're doing when, when you pull up a report is you're telling the program what time period you want to report. So even in, you could go back, you could go back now, let's say that you've been using profit gauges for 10 years, like some of our users have, we can go back and pull your numbers out of 2014 and tell you exactly what you did for that year. Okay. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, that pretty much wraps it up for today. All Um, right. Thank you guys. You're welcome. Let's go to Wisconsin. Jeff, welcome to the program. Warren, thanks for taking my call. What's on your mind I've today? Got, uh, I got some questions here. Maybe Henry. Maybe for Henry. I don't know. I looked at a 2019 Cascadia yesterday. It's got 625,000 miles on it. Got the DD15, 400 horsepower, auto shift, and the 216 rear end. And so that was the first time I'd ever driven a auto shift yesterday. So I was wondering. Is there anything to look for or be aware of, like when I was test driving that? I mean, it's everything seemed all right to me, but like I said, it was the first time I've ever driven an auto shift. So, so, so the first thing I'd say to you on the what you're calling the auto shift, which is probably the DT12, 
Did you find the clutch pedal? <laughs> First thing I did was put my foot on the floor. Yeah. No, it has a, it has a clutch pedal, and, oh, and and Volvo's the same way. It's important to know that because in that transmission it has the same clutch. So the clutch pedal is in the brake. It's powering a pneumatic throwout bearing. So when you're at a stop, don't keep taking your foot off the brake. I always have my left foot on the brake, and as I release the brake, I give it the throttle, and that gets the clutch to engage right away instead of slipping its way through it. Okay. Which, to give you an example, the two worst ones I ever saw with people, and, and they don't train people how to drive these automated manuals because they, they're automatics or they're auto shifts. And really, it's responding to an input you're giving it. So the worst ones I saw were in Tampa. They were two local rental trucks, and they told the drivers they were in automatics, and they drove them like they were automatics, and they kept taking their foot off the brake at traffic lights, and they wore the clutch out in under 50,000 miles. Oh, By contrast, the owner-operator team, husband and wife, that I showed how to use it right from day one, they got out of their truck at a million two hundred thousand and still had the original clutch. So huh. a, another thing to, to pay attention to here, and this is where I think Detroit done a very good job with the, with the setup you're talking about, which, Henry, I believe is a direct drive transmission. No, so yeah, it has that 41750 was built yes. for that. So it has a little bit deeper reduction in it. Um, the default starting gears sometimes, when they have the overdrive setup, can be a problem. So if you get in the truck and you put it under a load that defaults to like fourth or fifth and wants to start, um, that transmission may have some issues uh, that you're going to have to deal with. Um, so if the default starting gear is, you know, first, second, or third, uh, you're probably going to be in real good shape. So you may want to pay attention to where that, that default starting gear is uh, well, if you can get it under a load. And, and, and it also goes off of memory on that. So if you're – I'll never forget, I was 76,000 pounds with that setup, and I was pointed mm -hmm. downhill at a fairly mm -hmm. steep – sitting at a fairly steep traffic light, just went over a railroad bridge, and I was pointed down – that thing wanted to take off in fifth gear. And you know sure. what? It was right. It, it, it could, correct. When you're sitting on the flat and level, um, a lot of times what we run into on the Volvo side, and I don't know how much of a problem this is on the Detroit side, When on the Volvo side we tend to use a little more overdrive where they were using, Freightliner was using direct drive. And right. so when they had the traditional gear ratios of 308, that default starting gear was fine at fourth. But when we got to 264, 247, they had the same right. default starting gear and never bothered to change it. And it, it beat up mm -hmm. some transmissions till they got that figured out. So um, just really something beat up to pay clutches. attention to. Yes, well, right, exactly, exactly. So, so the other thing where I hear drivers, you know, like you hear so much talked about whether it's the iShift with Volvo or the DT12 with Detroit, how smart these transmissions are. And I think Joel would agree with me. There's not one ounce of smartness in either of these transmissions. There's also no stupid in them either. They operate on logic. They're responding to the weight and the input the driver's giving it. So if you floor the throttle, it's going to tend towards revving the gears up a lot higher, you know. But if you lift off the throttle, and, and I'm speaking on Detroit side, if you lift all the way off the throttle, it's not going to upshift because the message you send is you want to slow down, so it's going to hold that gear. But if you barely relieve pressure on the pedal, it sends a message, I'm satisfied, then it'll give you the upshift early. Is that the same way the Volvo works pretty much, Joel? 
Yeah, yeah, yep, pretty much. But 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 everything you're doing, you're sending it a message. It's simply giving you a response. And and once you learn that, you can make these things play like a fiddle and do tricks with them that you never could have done with a manual. So you pretty much always let it shift itself. You don't ever do it manually or no. There's no <laughs> yeah. need to. If you can control yeah. it by your foot and your actions. Okay. Which feel free to get a hold of me. I'll take you through it in a deeper dive. We could spend an hour just on that. But everything you're doing, you're sending it a message. The other thing I'll encourage you to do is to get the Smart Source app on your phone, Freightliner Smart Source. And if you go Smart there, source. put in the yep. Then go to the menu, go to training, and then it'll have training by VIN number. And where that's really nice because technology is changing, just like Kevin was referring to earlier. You put in the VIN number, and the training videos that are really short there are for that exact truck, the way it was ordered, and the way it was set up, and okay. not for the one down the street, the way they ordered it. Okay. Okay. And, and, and that'll there... give you – that's elementary school part of it, but most people don't even get to the elementary school part of it, and then they sit at the truck stop counter saying what the stupid automatic transmission <laughs> did. Sure. And it's not smart so... or stupid. It's logic. Yeah. Is there anything obvious that uh, that I would feel when that when I drove that thing if there was something wrong with it or? Yeah, it wouldn't shift. If there's something wrong, they yeah. just don't shift. But so the they maximum tolerance for it to shift the gears, the, the to give you an idea why I say it wouldn't shift, it just wouldn't do things. The maximum tolerance for it to mesh the gears because underneath all of us, it's a manual transmission. It's the same thing we always had. The maximum tolerance for it to mesh the gears is. 20 RPMs. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you Jeff, know, I was pretty good shifting, but I was not 20 RPM good. Jeff, here's something yeah. I can here's something I can tell you from That's pretty good. my viewpoint. Yeah, I'm on the air a lot. I get a lot of calls about maintenance issues, so it's a pretty good indicator of what's working and what isn't. I can tell you this. I get almost zero calls with problems about the I-Shift or the DT-12. Zero. I mean, I I can't think of a single call that I've had to take in the last couple of years that was actually a problem with one of those transmissions. They're pretty rock solid. It, it never gets tired and never misses a gear. It, it, they really don't. I, I have zero calls about problems with either one of these transmissions. Okay. Good. So the... They, does Pittsburgh Power have a program for that, or should you just leave it the way it is, or what's your thought I, on that? I, I wouldn't mess with it. I would not touch that. Leave that yeah. alone. Okay, good enough. And then uh, the only thing I noticed on it is it was a little wet right by one of the injectors. Is that anything that's yeah, it's very just a little. Or? it's just a little O-ring. It's, okay. I, I wouldn't say it's common i wouldn't say it's it doesn't happen i've i had it happen to one of mine but okay. it's no real big you, deal there and which is one of the things when people look at that engine they're like oh look at all that all them lines i'm like so the common rails on the outside of the engine instead of on the inside where you can see it so i'm gonna okay. throw throw out another topic the three of you i want your opinion on this uh i would say in today's world if you gave me a choice, you can either go test drive a truck as much as you want to, and that's your only information, or we can do an oil sample and an ECM dump, and you can't drive it. That's going to be your only information. 
hands down for me, give me the oil sample and the ECM dump every single time. I don't need to drive that truck. I, I, honestly, on test drives, and I'm pretty good at this, there isn't much I'm going to figure out on a test drive. If I can find no. it, on a, it on a test drive, it's got to be so obvious somebody should have found it anyway. So, yeah, and, and you know, an interesting one that got put to me, this wasn't my original idea. Uh, I know a guy that he looks at a truck, not just by its mileage, not just by its idle time, you know, and, and figuring which one he wants to get out of a pick of a litter looking at the engine reports. But he looks for which one actually burnt the least amount of gallons of fuel. Uh, uh, there, there is a ton of good information that we can get without ever driving the vehicle. And there's not much important information I'm going to get when I do drive it. That's been my experience. Yeah. My, my other favorite page is to look at the, the uh, engine load factor page of a detailed engine report which really shows you how the driver before drove it. Yeah. But just looking at one doesn't give you an idea. You've got to have a couple to compare to, and you'll see how much they used 90-plus of the engine, how much they used 80%-plus of the engine, and it breaks it all down by those percentages, and it gives you an idea whether the truck was driven by what I refer to as a light switch driver, which means they only know two positions on the throttle, on mm -hmm. or off. Yeah. And, 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 you, and you can glean all that out of that by going deep into it. Everything there, really. I'm waiting on the ECM report. I did do a rig dig, and there's nothing on that. Perfect. So. Well, that, well, that's what we hope for. Do, do that's the, the whole point. Yeah. Do the do the detailed engine report. Like, even if you got to pay for it, it looks okay. like you just printed off the Bible. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of information in there. Yeah. There, there'll be pages that'll be totally useless to you and most engineers. Right. I mean, it goes that deep. This, which is oh, what just always cracked me up with the ELD talk, Kevin. If anybody ever looked at a detailed ECM report, they'd realize that we've had them since the 80s. I know. The quick, uh, quick question. Have you driven a direct drive or downsped powertrain like, like you're thinking about getting here in the past? Never. Yeah. No. Okay. So you're probably going to want to talk with Henry here and, and really mm -hmm. understand the concept and how to drive it and why you're driving it that way because you'll really struggle with things if you don't understand why this thing is set up the way it's set up. I, I know you'd, you'd asked about possibly getting a tune on it, and we had talked earlier. If you gear a truck properly, it should not need a tune. Um, no. It, now, if there's a if there's a disconnect somewhere, okay, you can you can start to play with things there. But um, I'm here to tell you, I'm not a Detroit guy. Um, they've kicked my ass around a lot in terms of fuel efficiency <laughs> over the years. These guys yeah. got well, you right now got shovel. me, but you know, I'm so, coming well, back. You, that, that comes and goes, but um, they they've done a very very good job on this, and they have the gearing correct. Now. Being a direct drive, it will be a little bit limiting in terms of top speed, but it's going to be very, very efficient driven correctly. So you and Henry need to really talk in depth about that so you understand what you're getting into, why it is the way it is, and then I think you'll be very, very happy with that. That, that tr engine is fairly happy to just shy of 1,400, but it's really happy Right around twelve fifty, mm -hmm. it, it's it's thrilled to death to be there. Twelve fifty to a thousand. That that's that's where the meat of the torque and everything else is in that engine. 
Okay. All right. And then uh, how often should the overhead be done on that engine? I'd do it once a year. Once a year. You know, it seems like they're they're claiming now. Well, originally, and and, and I'm having arguments with them on that right now. (laughs) Originally, it was at 100,000 and then every 500,000 thereafter. That's what the salesman told me yesterday. I'm I'm convinced that worked. And then then they they went to 500,000 for the first one. Yeah. Well, that was right after I got mine done at 90,000. And I ran 160000 on one, and I just got the overhead done, and the intakes were just barely loose. It wasn't like it was way out. So I'm, I, I'm convinced we're all schizophrenic on this issue. I, I, nobody, can no, seem, nobody can seem to make up their mind or happens. explain why they, they have that thought. I, I can tell you why this happens, and this was relayed to me via one of the very, very top engineers in an organization that will remain unnamed that I chatted <laughs> with. So these extended overhaul or overhead intervals are to please fleets in order to maintain warranty, not because they make good sense. Ah, that's the bottom line. That, in order for a company it, to sell a mega fleet, 5,000 trucks, they're going to say, how often do I have to do the overhead and maintain warranty? Uh, has the longest interval? It, that's who, whose truck they're going to buy. Finally, something <laughs> well, yeah, makes I sense. Know, I know a fleet that keeps their trucks three years, <laughs> and they got it figured out. That, they're going to buy X amount of steer tires, one set of drive tires, yes, and but, not and, do the overhead. And, 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 and like yeah, seven and, oil changes, and they're done. If they do the seven that's oil changes. What this is all geared to. Yeah. Now, so, right. Joel, here's the but question. That's the mm-hmm. first thing I've heard that makes sense of why they would come out mm-hmm. with those numbers. That makes sense to me. So we can throw that out. Mm-hmm. It's meaningless for us. We don't want to go by those guidelines. Oh. How do we know what the right number is? I'd love to be able to say do you should it every, do it once a do year. Do it every year. That's what I, I keep been, saying, but I can't. I've been pulling trucks with my brother's fleet. We've been pulling them randomly, <laughs> brand new trucks. We pull them in random at virtually no miles and run an overhead. To me, when I get a new truck, I'm going to run that break-in oil for around ten to 15,000 miles, drop it, and run the overhead. Got it. Now, a lot of people are going, that's crazy. No, I it don't think not. so. I have caught loose valves, loose injectors. Nobody's perfect. They're within spec, but they're <laughs> yeah, not optimal. Right. Yeah. We want to be optimal. Fleets want to be within spec. They are just worried about maintaining warranty, not is this engine running as efficiently as possible. Well, Two different and, things and that, going on and, there. And, and that being said, with what it costs to put a truck in the shop to get an overhead, the amount that mine was mm-hmm. off, I'll never make up that money in fuel mileage. Yeah, but, uh, well, in, <sighs> right. Yeah. But, but here's, here's the thing a that fleet, we always have I to keep on in down, mind. On a fleet, I wouldn't make it up when you consider downtime of the truck and the fuel mileage. The, the, Which, the fleet you know, never make it up because of their ever. idle time. Right. You know, the guys just no. idle it. They never make it up. They don't want to touch these damn things. I want to buy it new. Like you said, Henry, I know I'm going to put three sets of tires on it, six oil changes. It's out the door. We talked about having to run efficiently. The thing that we always have to keep in mind as small single truck operations is that catastrophic emissions failure. One way to avoid a catastrophic emissions failure, well, two ways, 
proper gearing and running the damn overhead and keeping the valves adjusted. So and not idling. You know, yeah, right. Those three <laughs> things, the three most important things you can do. And All right. so run it every year based on the experience that we've had pulling trucks at random. It's about a year. There run it go. every year. And reject, retorque your injector hold downs if it's applicable when you're doing it. I, I like, and, and I like our conclusion that. You know, a lot that. happens in a hundred and some thousand miles. Think about it to back in the good old days. You'd be halfway to an overhaul. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Hey, all right. All right. We got more calls we've got to get to. But before we do, I'm assigning you guys homework. Okay. Joel already has it. Okay. Have, have, have either one of you other two. We already got homework. No, you don't. Well, you have more now. You have more. So have either one of you two read the book, The, the End of the World is Just the Beginning? No. Okay, I want you to go read it. We're going to talk about it next week, and here's why. I, I just saw some numbers on this. This is pretty incredible. So the book, I'll just give you kind of a little preview. The book makes the wild claim that worldwide shipping and our global supply chain is going to collapse. We're going to, all countries are going to go back to nearshoring. I mean, it sounds outrageous when you read it. The guy makes really good arguments. He had me completely convinced. And it's going to happen because worldwide shipping is going to become unsafe and the, the American government can no longer afford to police the world's oceans. Well, I'm looking at an article or a, a news piece right now. Um, ocean container rates from China to the Medita Mediterranean have doubled in the past 10 days and likely more to come mm -hmm. if this doesn't resolve. 30% of the world's well, goods travel through the Suez Canal right now, and those ships are all being attacked. I'm, I'm well right. aware of the nearshoring, you know, seeing I live in Laredo, which is the number one inland port in our country. <laughs> yeah, the nearshoring is happening. Well, well there's real. no doubt about it. I mean, it, it, manufacturing with, you know, smaller and smaller CNC machines, laser cutters, all kinds of technology, you can produce... I, Lisa produces some pretty crazy stuff here with a, a laser cutter, a Glowforge machine. Um, I was just down at, at David Counts's place, Fleet Air Filter. They've got a half a million dollar CNC machine, and they produce almost all of that filter on, on site now. They're making their own housings. It, it, there, so there is a trend well, to that. Some of it's technology. Sure. Well, I've, well, I've heard that climate change is driving it as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the one thing that I, I heard I mean, that they say is going to change the parts industry is the 3D printing. Right. That's that what I mean. The parts, yes. They won't stop. They'll print them at the dealer. Well, here's the thing. David Counts and Fleet Air Filter are now, if you want a cabin air filter for your truck, which we don't talk about it enough, nobody changes these things, and it does matter, your air conditioning or your heat are much more efficient when you have a nice clean cabin filter on there. Some people don't even know they yes. exist. But if you want one for your truck, you call Fleet Air Filter, tell them what truck you have, and they're going to 3D print your cabin filter. Nice. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. So awesome. it's a pretty, pretty cool thing. And like I said, they've got a big CNC machine there. They're, they're producing their own housings. They're cutting and manufacturing all their own parts right there for those filters. But, the, it, but this it, idea that... It's amazing what the 3D printing will do. I've already yeah. had...
prototype yeah. brackets and parts for he, the truck early on, and you'd swear it's just a production part. Here's something else I just got, um, totally off topic, but it, uh, Lisa got me a beehive, because I'm going to put bees over on the farm, honeybees, and this this beehive is really different. It's made in Australia, and the difference is instead of opening up the whole hive and pulling out those frames and scraping all the honey off of them. With this hive, there's a spigot at the bottom of each frame. You just open the spigot, and the honey comes out into a jar. You're not disturbing the bees. It's a lot less work. It's more efficient. But hey, the, this, this thing comes from Australia, but as soon as I open it up, it's got a lot of parts, too. It's wood, um, some metal, a little bit of plastic. It's got a lot of parts. Every single wood part there was cut on a small laser machine. You can see the burn marks. It's the, yeah. it's the same thing that Lisa's doing down here with their Glowforge. They just have a slightly bigger Glowforge, and they're manufacturing this whole thing. So, Kevin, I, I know you had talked about trying to find a beehive that was compatible with, oh, with naked farming, and, and now you found one. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I don't have to open up the hive and worry about getting chased naked by a bunch of bees. There you go, man. <laughs> Yeah, now now you you can you can get honey and that's right. <laughs> put your clothes on. <laughs> oh, gotta yeah, go right. let that go at some point. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you yeah, got read, read or listen to the book. We'll talk about it next week. The, uh, con- yeah, container yeah, rates good. doubling in ten days. That's a big deal. Well, let's let's put it into our context. What would it be like if our, our mileage rates doubled in 10 days? Be awesome for us. Pretty rough on yeah. the economy. Yep, yep, yep. absolutely. But that, well, what, you would know, happen, that's... what would happen? We'd get 800,000 people jumping in and <laughs> rates went back to normal. <laughs> Everybody would be crying that it's a, it's a scam and everybody's getting ripped off. Oh, oh, the brokers are in cahoots. That's right. Yeah, that's go. exactly what would yeah. happen. And right. everybody's going to say that we need regulation on freight rates. Yeah. And Kevin will then get his big government grant. There you go. All right. We're going to get to some calls. Let's go to California. TJ, welcome. Kevin, what's happening? Wait, what are you doing today? It's got to be something interesting. I'm, dri- I'm, I'm driving a DT12 transmission, trying to figure out how to stop this thing the most efficient way. Well, we told you. There you go. The, the problem is Roll you. Roll the window down. The, the problem is you own the brakes on the trailer, too, so my method isn't going to help you any. Yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> I don't like those flat spots. That's right. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I re listened to yesterday's show. What an amazing piece of content that was with all that motor coach talk. I love that. Wasn't that a great RV show we had yesterday? Yeah, no, that was awesome. I didn't realize he built his coach from the ground up, basically, or, or minus the chassis, but he built the RV portion. That's crazy. I, I was there when he was building it, and I was just blown away. He, he is so talented at fabrication, and he has a bunch of people that work for him that are good at that kind of stuff. But for the entire body, everything, they built from scratch, including, if you heard, he invented a better slide system. Yeah, yeah, no, I heard that. That's awesome, and it like it's like a cradle that swings yeah. out, and I guess it gets higher as it swings out, and then it flushes out when it closes. Yeah, yeah, which is and crazy because I'm wondering how he feels it. How does it, the seal work if it's moving in that fashion? 
Well, that's a good point. I'd have to go down there and look at it. Like I said, I was there when he was building it, and I just saw it again a, a month or so ago. Still looks as beautiful as it did when he built it. Uh, but that's, uh, and not only that, I'm sure, I don't know what it's like to try to get a slide in on your coach if it fails when you're out on the road. I, I've got a big toolkit that must weigh 150 pounds with a bunch of straps and handles and all kinds of stuff. I have no idea how I would get a slide back in. On his, you take a drill and a, a ratchet or a drill and a, a socket and stick it through a hole and run it right back in. That's all there is to it. Yeah, yeah. no, that's a great manual override for sure. I can tell you that, I, that the very best slides on the market, bar none, are valid slides, V-A-L-I-D, and they are awesome. They actually have 24-hour service. So if your coach has one, then you can call them 24 hours and they pick up the phone and walk you through it. Wow. And on my nice. coach, there's a, yeah, it's, it's a great company. Um, and so, and they know in their system what brand of um, motorhome that it went on. And so they can, you know, find the VIN number and then they'll know the specifics as well. So the valid company, wow. if an, if an installer uses them, they connect with the VIN number and then they, they have a bunch of data. So, so on mine, the, the, there's a manual override, right? So you can, if there's safety concerns, like if, uh, you know, whatever, if a bay door is open, they won't slide, but you can override everything okay. and make that thing go. Now, you got to know what you're doing. I've called in about four times, and every time I learn a little bit more, like, um, you know, you got to I, tell them exactly the truth, because if you're off by a little <laughs> bit, then they'll give you the wrong advice. Well, I, I probably shouldn't say this. I, I, I can't believe I'm going to, but I, I guess I'm going to. I can say the one problem I have not had at all on my coach, I haven't had a single slide issue at all, and that's unusual. I have four slides, and not yeah, a single you, problem. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't well, have I, said I that. I know. Brand. I know. I should have <laughs> shut up. But. <laughs> What's the brand of them? Are they HWH? They are. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a really good company as well. So, but they're, they produce them for everyone and they have great right. com, uh, customer service as well. They're based in Iowa and you can just send your parts back, like whether it's the control box or whatever, and they'll fix it for like $16 and send it back. It's the craziest thing, but I've done hey, that on my four travel. Speaking of, of um, good customer service in, in replacing parts, I just had an experience with this. I was a little shocked. I've, so our house here was built in 2007. We bought it in 2012. The master bath, well, bathtub, it's got a separate tub and shower in the master bath. And the tub is a monster. I love that thing. You could like swim laps in it. It's so big. And they did something weird. The water comes out of the ceiling. So you turn on the faucet on the wall and the water comes straight out of the ceiling about 10 feet up. But that knob, the mixer knob that used to turn the water on, has never worked right since we've lived here. It's really tough. It almost takes two hands to turn it. It's almost like Henry described earlier. It's not really a valve. It's more like an on-off switch. It goes from pure cold to pure hot. There's no in-between. It's made me crazy. I actually had a plumber here one time for something else. And I said, hey, can you look at this valve for me and, and fix this thing? Like a half hour later, he comes downstairs. He says, I can't even figure out how to get the valve apart. And I said, you're kidding me. And he said, no. He said, I, I cannot figure out how to get that valve apart. 
So the other day I was just frustrated with it, and I thought, I'm going to work on this thing till I figure it out. So I finally figured out how to get the valve apart itself. We got it apart, figured out that the, the mixer itself was, was bad, and I, I got that part off, and it's a Kohler. So I called Kohler to try to find where am I going to get this part. And without any questions at all, I, I gave her the part number and all that stuff, and, and she said, do you know about when the house was built or when that was put in? I said, yeah, I can tell you exactly when it was. It was 07 when they built the house. She said, oh, we're going to send you all new parts. They covered this under warranty. Wow. Yeah, from a house that was built in 2007, and no questions or anything. I just told them what part I had, and they're sending me all new parts. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. So if you need faucets, buy Kohler. I'm going to get um, one of those um, fleet air filters for my coach. All right. Because remember, I run, if I go down a dirt, a dirt road, then it, it sucks so much dirt into the air cleaner, it kills it every time. Yeah. So yeah. Hey, I, I think I'm going to get one of those built from he, David. You should do that. And while you're at it, just go to our store and just buy fleet air filters for your whole damn fleet. What are you waiting for? There you go. I thought we went over that. They, they get thrown away when you get in. That that's true. You get a, a service we, over the road. I know. That's a shame. We'll. we'll uh, yeah. I have an but idea. Like I have an idea. If you ingenious if, yeah. if you agree to buy fleet air filters for your whole fleet through all sh- our store, I'll put Apple Air tags on them so you don't lose them. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That might actually work until the battery goes out. And they're <laughs> oh, it's but anyways, what else? What else were they talking about at the beginning of this show? I kind of missed it. Did we have any economic insight from the boys? Oh, we had all kinds of good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Don't use your trailer brake uh, to stop the vehicle. Right. Yeah, I got that. One. Yeah, I was. I was. I was outvoted <laughs> on that one. I was. I was kicked off the island for that one. Especially on a six by two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The um. The, you guys missed the main point on that though, because he asked which is better to use. Well, doesn't it depend on how heavy the load is? Like, if I'm heavy, I'm obviously going to use more Jake. If I'm empty, I'm going to use my foot brake. Right. So, That's how I do it. So you know that phrase you just used, and and we kind of touched a little bit on those. I, I can remember I was doing a seminar. I was at the Dallas Truck Show. I think it was the first year. And I was getting just a ton of questions. Like, people just had a lot of questions that time. And I fell into this routine of every time somebody would ask a question, the first thing I would say is, well, it depends. Because it really does, right? When you ask these kind of questions in a big group and there's, it, it, it depends. Well, it almost turned into a comedy routine. Every time somebody would ask a question, I'd say, well, it depends. The whole crowd would laugh. I'm, I'm usually not funny, but I got more laughs that time than than ever. And, and it, when you think about it, every question that gets asked here, well, it depends. We got to get down to the details. Yeah, absolutely. So the weight on these trucks, man, I, I like to pull heavy though. So I guess I should go look at my drive tires and I, and who knows what the drivers are doing. I'm just speaking for myself, you know? Well, you're one of your drivers. You, you may put on more miles than most of your drivers do. I wish, but that's not the case. Seems like it to me. I know that. Do you sleep? I know by that the way, every time I log in, every time I log in, there's there's plenty of hours on my logbook available. So. 
So what do you but, think about yeah, the... Yeah, I don't uh, know. I, I like that record. After a holiday, I try to work 20 hours the next three days in a row. That's how I do it. There you go. So what do you, okay, what do you think about the, um, what's going on in the Red Sea and the Suez Canal? Well, <clears throat> I guess the United States Navy is supposed to take action. They were sinking some, some of those Houthi boats the other day. I don't know. I guess they'll do anything to keep things expensive. So you saw this. You just mentioned the container rates. Doubled are, in 10 days. Are going through the roof. Double in 10 days, right? So... And, and then we also know the Biden administration doesn't know how to negotiate deals with anything or anybody. They don't talk to people. We don't do diplomacy. We don't do anything right anymore because everyone's too, too lazy to make the phone call. You know, you know I, so. I, I completely agree with what's happening and they're doing nothing across the board on almost every issue. I, I have to believe it's planned, that it's a feature, not a bug. They're not that lazy. They're not that stupid. There's got to be some bigger plan to all this. Yeah. Yeah, um, probably. I mean, they're so incompetent. It's yeah. like, okay, how it, could you be so incompetent? You can't be, really. You just can't be as incompetent as they're being right now on all these issues. Yeah. Well, and that well, moron, hold on a second. I, I, he comes out. I, that guy comes out and says that they've done a great job because – the ports can, are flowing now. Meanwhile, he, for 10 days, for 14 days, he doesn't give an update on the Red Sea. Right. You know, for 14 days, that guy doesn't say anything about the Red Sea. He'll do, he'll do 15 different speeches on, you know, on nothing stuff, like whatever. How many, how many uh, you know, downtrodden people the government's hired in the last you know, in the administration, but he doesn't talk anything about the current problems that are real problems in transportation. Right. I'm not talking about truck parking. I'm not, even, I'm not talking about the truck problem, truck parking problem that everyone thinks we have. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about big things like, you know, ships in the Red Sea. Yeah. Yeah. Supply but chain he, shortages he, still. He, I, think, I think there is a good, it's a good plan because by offshore manufacturing, the cost of that getting it to our shores, with all of that going up, it's going to make domestic manufacturing and therefore our national security and our well, economies just blossom. And freight rates well, are going to go back to where wait, they need to be. Wait till you so guys it, read this book. Whether and, it's through incompetence or neglect, it's a good thing. Wait no? until you guys read this book and we talk about this next week. If what he is talking about, if it is really starting to come true, you know, if this is what we're seeing in the Red Sea, there is good news for us when he after he he analyzes all the countries in the world and says, if this were to happen, if we go back to near shoring and we're not shipping stuff all over the world, some countries will be decimated by this. They have almost no natural resources. He said the single best situated country in the world, if this were to happen, is the United States. Yeah, because when it happens, we're just going to take over Mexico and we're going to take over to, Canada. And we have and all the well, yep, there. and we have all the resources so I, we need to be wealthy and successful, and right here, just in North America. I mean, that's his take in the book. I think everybody's missing the most important thing here when you look at the Red Sea and what's going on over there right now. We've deployed all this naval power and. And it all centers around the, the Houthi rebels. Do they listen to Houthi and the blowfish? That's what I want to know. 
Well, I That's used really to. That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, I, I have an opinion on that. Rebels listen. I, I, I used to really like Hootie and the Blowfish until they started to identify as country. What the hell was that all about? <laughs> well, are they on? Are they on tour in the Red Sea? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now that he identifies as country, I just can't listen to him anymore. <laughs> One thing from the wrong area of the country, spend right? More of our tax money overseas than they'll spend here in no, the United States. Yeah, that's, that yeah, yeah, that's just insane. But uh, seriously, though, when you look at this, and, and I hear this argument a lot about um, wanting to spend all of our tax money at home, don't send that any overseas. We got in a whole world of trouble doing that just before World War II. And just, just keep that in mind, that kind of laissez-faire, let them do what they want to do and don't pay no attention to them and just concentrate what happens at home. That leads to big, big, big problems. And I hear the argument a lot about Ukraine. You know, that's, oh, we can't be sending money over. <laughs> Look, <laughs> they're killing a whole lot of Russians, you know, on military equipment and, and, and get the job done. And this is stuff that we would be throwing away anyway because the expiration dates up, up on a lot of these missiles and artillery shells we're, we're sending them. So I, I don't necessarily know that that's a, that's a bad thing. Um, uh, sure. Hold on. Well, Who, what, you know, wait, wait, wait. Killing Russians? Killing Russians is not a good thing. No, it's not. Killing Russians is not a good thing. But here's something else. And, and guess what else it, is not a good thing? Throwing Ukrainians at cannons as cannon fodder up there in the front line when they're 40, 50 years old. Well, they, they're gonna they are gonna fight regardless of if we're there or not. Wait a minute. The Here's Russians the would roll Ukraine Ukraine over. Here's the they bigger would roll issue. Them over without us helping them. Correct. Well, yeah, they would. But here's the bigger issue that we're not talking about. We our our goal has always been to spend money around the world to promote democracy and we've been mm -hmm. told that ukraine is a democracy when it is nowhere near a democracy not even close it is a dictatorship yeah it's a dictatorship why are we it's spending money to, pro to to protect a country we don't agree with our our goal was to protect and and spread democracy around the world that's not what we're doing here in ukraine this is not a democracy <laughs> no it, 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 it's not what we're doing here in ukraine and and, and and you know a lot of people aren't going to want to hear this but when you look at world war ii when the nazis started rolling over people what did we do we took the position of oh, just let it be just let it go they'll they'll settle down it's okay it's none of our business we done that just before world war ii we, we just let it go. We, what we did in World War II is we let the we let the Russians handle the, the Nazis for us. That's exactly after, what they did back then, and after, that's exactly what they're doing well, right now. Well, no, 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 no. Russians <laughs> are absolutely one hundred percent. How do I want to say this? They are diametrically opposed to what we want to do in in Europe and in free so, countries. They look at no, us as so is, you, so is Ukraine, uh, though. That's why you were told in school. I disagree completely. That's not at all. So the, what, so the, so the big trade. 17 that they, they sent to Korea didn't, didn't blow the hell out of us. They didn't send all kinds of support down to Vietnam to blow the hell out of us, and, and the Russians are just happy with us? 
I'm telling you, Russia likes to trade with the world, and this is not making it any better. And I can tell you, Ukraine is the most corrupt country, number one on the list, right before this war started. Okay, so you're funneling all of our taxpayer dollars over to a corrupt dictatorship. Right? Yeah, now, that's my, my problem. Here's my prediction. That, that guy, Zelensky, he will be out within three months. By the end of this quarter, he will not be in charge anymore. This war is going to come to an end this year, and it's going to start with him getting booted out. You know, here, why do you think it's coming to an end? Coming to an end because Russia's kicking their ass, and they're going to have to come to the table and be diplomatic. Here's something I wonder about. That's why. TJ, what's your opinion on this? Remember at the very beginning of this, and nobody had heard of Zelensky or who he was, and, and we made him out to be Churchill in the beginning. And, they, you know, he was running for his life, and he was hiding out in buildings in the city, commanding the army. And they were, there were contracts out on him. He's going to be killed if we don't protect him. And, and now what's he doing? He's hanging out at beaches around the world. Like, why are we not worried that he's going to be assassinated anymore? Why did that change? Why did we have all that theater in the beginning about how he's so brave and he's in the trenches? And and now what the hell is he doing? He's just spending all of our money. Well, at the last meeting, he got completely shunned by everyone because he showed up in his stupid green attire. And and that isn't going over it well anymore. Yeah. Right? His wife's on the cover of magazines. They're taking stupid. It's just a big photo op. Exactly. in charge. And. And it's, and it's all of our taxpayer money that's doing it. And they're not spending it where they should, right? Here in the United States of America. I and agree. by the way, let's not, can we talk about the waste? You just, hey, Joel, give me all your money, and I'm the worst trucking company in the country. Would you give me your money? No. I, I, know, I, know, I, I, know, I know exactly company. what's going to happen. But you don't think that there's American advisors over there running that operation in the background? The CIA's running it, and they're fucking yeah, doing Absolutely, bad. they are. That's not good. That's not good. I promise you, that's not good. You think? Who do you think blew up that pipeline so, underneath the up underneath the sea up there, close to Sweden so, and, and Norway? Who blew that up? How, how much military equipment on the Russian side has been eliminated? What's their capacity to fight now? Right now, the story goes. Yeah. Well, what do I know? I don't know. Russia's yeah. producing enough for their military, and the United States cannot even give Ukraine enough to do anything about it. That's, it's a lot closer. They're producing it, and they're putting it forth, and that's why, they, that's why they're, it's a good, they're running the country over right now. They fight artillery wars all the time. Now, here's what I say to the United States of America. If they want to do this, we need to send our people over there. If we think Russia's so bad, then, then get over there and start... Start doing the thing. No, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't want to put boots on the ground over there. We need to send every. If it's so important, strategically in the world, we need to go all in. This whole dabbling around like we did in Iraq and we did in Afghanistan for twenty years—that's not the way the U.S. fights wars. That's the way the CIA fights wars. Ooh. But if the USA, you gotta say we have we have done this for generations. The Russians have done it for generations. They fight these covert operations and these uh, um, wars, proxy wars. I, I guess would be the the, the best way to, to put it. And uh, you know, I think their CIA is probably looking at this. Well, we can really put a, a thorn in their side, and we can take out a whole bunch of armor. We can take out a whole bunch of this. We can take out a whole bunch of that. 
uh, you got to look at the cost of doing this. Why would we put our guys on the ground to stop a Russian advance in Ukraine when we could just fund them to do so? Yeah, are they gonna? Are they corrupt and they're gonna steal some of that money? Absolutely. Some of that's got to be making it to the front line because there's Abrams tanks over there and there's Leopards and there's gonna be F-16s over there. Some of it's making it over there to the front line. The the people that are dying, right? Mm -hmm. I don't care what color they are, whether they're Slavic or whether they're I I don't care less either. Some people, and it sounds like you think that we should send our money, but not our people. That's wrong. We should not. We should not. No, we should not. send. we should not send our people over there. Absolutely not. Why would you send our people over there? They've got people that are willing to fight. They need to be funded in order to do it. I don't know so why we would spend our, send our come, money over there. Come then. across the border illegally. You've got Russia invades a country that just asked for hardware and help. They weren't asking for us to put people on the ground. They're willing to fight their own fight. I, I'm going to go back to where $33 trillion in debt. You can't help anybody else I, if, you, if you don't help yourself first. And I, I get it. People are dying. But, but again, if we were even protecting some sort of democracy, I might be a little more. But even then, I would say, so, look, I don't care how good the cause is. When you're $33 trillion in debt, you can't be giving money away. Uh, okay, okay, Kevin. So look at it this way. So if with the benefit of hindsight, 2020, we go back to World War II, look at Poland, look at France. If we had the opportunity to send them a bunch of money to build up their military in Poland and France before the Nazi machine got running, how many lives would that have saved? And we wouldn't have had to put a boot on the ground, just modernize their military force. That, that's an Poland awful lot of speculation. How many lives would I, I, that have that, saved? That's an awful lot of speculation. I have no idea. Yes, you do, too. Come on, how many how many Jews got burned over in Poland I, in the how concentration do we know, How do we know we could have, have stopped that? would have never happened if we would have modernized those forces. Well, that's the part hey, Joel, I don't know. I'm going to give a gentleman. I got to I got to go right now because I had an important customer. <laughs> oh, awesome. oh, oh, he's summoning me. You throw a grenade into the conversation. Uh, and then yeah, he did. Oh, you're on. Everyone needs to go watch. You can go to Rumble and look up Ukraine on fire. Go watch it. This thing goes way back. Right. The United States does not have any business in sorting this out between Poland, between Germany, between Russia and between Ukraine. Okay, Ukraine has always been the middle stomping ground where everyone goes. That's where all these battles were fought. Now, watch Ukraine on fire. Study a little bit more about that culture before we just say sending money over there is a good thing because it's not. It's fueling. It's fueling. They're differences, it's, and it's not right. They need to. We, we need to. This is not a good one. And I'll tell you what: the the, the uh, Middle East is not a good one either. And we took twenty years and a trillion dollars to learn that lesson, and they're going to learn it again because we're going to get sucked into that one. And we sh- we probably shouldn't even do that. What we should do is let all these people that we disagree with kill off each other if they want to, and then we can. <laughs> hey, that might, help that down might the road be a better. All done. How hard? How hard would this have been back when we were shutting down Afghanistan and Russia was threatening Ukraine, and we had hundreds of billions of dollars worth of equipment sitting there? 
a whole lot closer, and we left that, and then we <laughs> ship all of our stuff over to Ukraine now. Well, just that one kind of common sense piece alone, just that. We, we left all that stuff sitting over there in that part of the world. I, see this? I, I I completely agree. Oh, no, we did. I think no, we, we didn't. Just just go to the Biden administ- administration statement recently, <laughs> and they say John Kirby just said we did not leave that equipment over there. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We just haven't we just haven't brought it back yet. <laughs> we will wrap this up. We will see you back here on Monday. Everybody have a great weekend, and uh, we'll see you then. Be safe. Be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.